That too? Who'd want to do that? Sequels suck. By definition alone, there are inferior films. Welcome back, movie fans. This is the podcast, Sequel Suck, and I'm Cable Brandon, and this is a chat about a movie that I'm pretty sure Angus and I both love, Scream 2, a movie that inspired this podcast and also gave it its name, and I can't be any more excited. How about you, Angus? Finally. It's great. I'm very excited. I'm very uh, giddy. I'm, I'm pumped. Uh, this is a big, big, uh, big episode. Uh, some really, we got we got to do some fun stuff for this episode. We've never done on the pod before, which was good. Uh, which and some fun stuff I've never done uh, anywhere in my life. I think um, I was pretty excited about it. And this is like one of this is one of the big movies for me. This is like in my top ten all time films. Which there's not a lot of people, I think, outside of you, who when I say that to are like, yeah. Most people are like, what? But this yeah. is, yeah. Screen two is is up on Mount. Uh, what is it? Olympus. No. Yeah. The, the, what's the one with the faces. Whatever you call it. Ah, uh, Rushmore. Yeah, that's it. It's, Mount Rushmore it's of movies. The, yes. The American dead white guy face mountain of movies for me. Yeah, it's um. Look, we. I don't think we. We won't sugarcoat it. Uh, you know, we talk about our dessert pastry and where it ranks, and and I, I don't think it's really silly for us to even say that that's probably almost irrelevant our rating because I think we're going to be talking this movie up so much, and I I'm glad you are like me. I mean, it'd be great if you didn't like the movie. It'd be interesting to hear your take on it. But I can uh, pretend. I can pretend. I'm well. Like it. <laughs> it's 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 definitely um there's only a few of us uh, i mean look i think there's the hardcore screen fans that will say this is definitely up there with the the first movie um you don't get too many people that really bag this 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 movie itself um but um yeah i think my passion for this movie it kind of it does blow my mind a little bit like when i sometimes people you know, i'm all over the shop like i'm just don't know where to go because um, I think it's it's one of those movies that it, it does shock me sometimes when when I think of top ten movies of all time, and I think there's two two ways to look at that, and that's a whole other discussion, I guess. But I think when people say what are the ten best movies you've seen, that's quite different to your ten favorite movies. And this movie is in my top ten favorite movies of all time, if not in the top three, if not number one, and it is almost the most watched movie um, that. I've ever watched and that's kind of kind of sounds really stupid when you think of how many great movies are out there not to drop this a level but to think that this is actually just a sequel to a, a horror movie that was a surprise hit is kind of it's kind of bizarre a bit I, I i can see why people would look at me and even you if you told people how much you love this movie there'd be raised eyebrows for sure yeah but i think with anything uh, especially movies, but with anything, a lot of the love and the the uh, passion for it comes from when you see it. And I think you and I mm. are around a similar age. So we saw this movie when it came out and we saw it at a very um, formative part of our lives, coming off a film that 
we saw at a very specific time in our life that was a very formative movie in our life. Like for me, Scream, the original Scream was the film that clued me in to all the the great slashes. Like I, I grew up watching a lot of movies, but when Scream came out in 1996, like I was in year seven. So my ability to get a hold of a lot of the more extreme horror movies was limited and I had to like befriend video store clerks over a couple of years before I could get them. But there's a lot of 18 plus stuff. And my mom was cool, but there was some stuff. She was just like, not, not yet, not that. So I didn't really know this stuff existed. And also when you're a kid, you go into the video store and you see the VHS and it's the older, like more worn cases that look like an old movie. You pick up something like Halloween. It's got a picture of a pumpkin with a knife on it. And you're like, nah, I don't know. That looks like a bit, a bit dodgy. I'm going to go and, you know, rent something else. And then Scream comes out and you've got Randy being essentially a psycho. And like, it's this, it's this, it's this. And then you start reading about it. You're like, this is a homage to all these great movies. And this director's made those great movies. And these actors are all excited by these movies. And you think, all right, I'll start checking them out. So by the time Scream 2 came out, and I know it was a short, short gap between Scream 1 and Scream 2. But after I saw Scream 1, I went on a run. And I watched all the classics. I went out and I got all the slashes, like slashes in my jam. Now let's do it. And that was my gateway drug. So by the time I got to Scream 2... I had like the Randy horror movie knowledge in my head. So when they're like, oh yeah, Jimmy Lee Curtis, Terror Train. I'm like, fuck yeah, Terror Train. David Copperfield's in that movie. And like, I was in it. I knew what was up. So this movie hit me and it was like, this is all I care about is this, is this movie. All I care about is slashes. I care about very cleverly written slashes. It's also we're in Dawson's Creek era and Kevin Williamson wrote Dawson's Creek, created Dawson's Creek. I was a big Dawson's Creek fan. So I was like, okay, great. You got your, you got your breakfast and you get dinner. You know, you sit down, you watch a little Dawson's Creek, you get a little bit of that snappy dialogue to warm up and then bam, main meal, here comes Scream 2. It was, it was everything I needed. So this movie hit me at the exact point. If this movie came out today, if the first time I saw Scream 2 was in 2021, would I love it as much? I mean, I'm inclined to say yes, but I don't know. I, I don't know. But I think because of when I saw it, because of who I was and where I was in 1997, there's no way this movie's ever getting knocked out of my top 10. I, I, it's too big a part of the period of my life where I was discovering movies. Necessarily just talking about Scream 2 straight away. Sc- Scream, the first one, did, did you see it at the cinemas or was it something you found later on? No, no, I saw it. I rented it overnight on VHS. I remember I watched it in the daytime. I remember it also vividly. So I wanted to see it at the cinema, but mum was like, I don't know, you're just a bit too young. And getting to the movies was hard. like, I grew up in a country town to go to the movies. It was like an hour something drive. It was an event. Yeah. You had to plan it, you know, weeks in advance. So getting over the hump of all of that to see a movie that mum wasn't sure. And I also like, it hadn't come out yet. And like I said, I hadn't had that run of slashes. So it wasn't number one on my list. I was just like, that looks cool. Oh, really? It's written by the guy who did Dawson's Creek. Sweet. But it didn't hit me. And then when it came out overnight, I looked at the cover and I was like, yeah. And also I looked at Drew Barrymore and I knew who drove drew barrymore was by then and i knew that i wanted to marry her so i was like yes i'm gonna watch this movie with drew barrymore and boy was i disappointed uh, six minutes into that film but i remember watching it and being glued to the screen i remember and oh, it goes without saying but spoilers i remember the end the twist where the, it's not just billy it's billy and Stu. it's two killers like that blew my mind because i'd never seen it before i was like oh my god two ki-. like that's genius of course have two killers i never would have thought of that and the elation and my mum was kind of half watching it in the room just to make sure it wasn't too fucked up but she didn't really care too much and i remember like standing up when the killer reveal happened to be like oh my god mum, there's two killers holy shit it's billy and Stu. she's like oh, it's pretty cool. I'm like, have you ever seen that before 
and she was into horror she's like um i don't know i don't i don't know if i have I'm like you're not excited enough about this and i think i watched it like another five times before i had to take it back to the video store the next day like it just it was loop loop and i was every time i watched it i saw something else and i loved some more i was like this is the shit uh, did you see it at the cinema? No. So that that's another one of those moments in life that I, I if I could take back again, um, mm-hmm. it'd be that because I know. So I know being a big Courtney Cox fan, you know that was on my radar that she was doing this horror movie, and uh, you know you said like the other famous person attached to so that was uh, Drew Barrymore, but then Wes Craven being a sort of fan or you know, interested in uh, Nightmare on Old Street. Um, for me, again, yeah, it's one of my greatest regrets because I, I, I feel like it got an okay review in the Herald Sun, which Lee Patch used to do, and I believe he still does, was the major uh, critic that did movies. And I think he's, uh, you know, he's definitely not a horror fan because uh, he never gives them decent reviews. But I, I feel like he gave it an okay review and again, it was something I wanted to see, but it was one of those weird ones, at least in Australia. Like, I know it was a very big word of mouth movie in the States where just the, the more and more people started going. It was a really funny thing. It opened small and, and it just built up a big audience as people started to, you know, again, word, word of mouth and the word filtered around, go see this movie. Problem being, like, similar to you, like, I didn't have, I mean, I had an outlet to a cinema but I just wasn't getting people wanting to sort of see it. And I was sort of interested. I'm like, do I want to see it? And it was one of those ones where I don't think there was great word of mouth here in Australia, at least in my group of sort of people. And I guess I was still in high school at the time too, but I don't feel like there was much buzz around it. And I was kind of like, oh, then I'm, then I felt like I heard, I did hear someone say, oh no, it's no good. And, and then I sort of like, oh, well, and then it just passing by, it just wasn't out for really long enough for me to go and see it. And then I still vividly remember going to one of my mate's houses and he'd done up like a sort of his bedroom was sort of part of like almost like under the house in the sort of basement and he'd done it up and kind of, I was helping him do it like a cinema room and he, we were putting up some black, um, black walling and stuff like that. And then he goes, oh, hang on. And this is the good old days when you used to, to dub a movie or copy it. You'd have two, v, two VHS <laughs> machines yeah. next to each other. You'd put the, 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 the video shop copy in and play it and record it on a blank tape in the other. And he was about to do that. And he put on Scream. And I remember thinking, he goes, have you seen this movie Scream? He goes, it's pretty good. I'm like, Scream, have you seen? Oh, and then it was like, oh, my God, I really want to see that. And then. Then we stopped work and we sat there and I was like, just, I was just enthralled. like just couldn't take my eyes off it. So I was like, to think I was watching a, a VHS new release sort of copy of this movie. <laughs> it was kind of ridiculous. Though thankfully, by the time we did get around to the trilogy and the third one got released, the good old movie marathon, which I don't know if they really still do much anymore, but it used to be a big thing back in the day with Hoyts and Village used to run movie marathons. They only I, kind of do it now for like the big, 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 big movies, like yeah, like so, the Fast franchise or something. Yeah, so I did think I actually had an inkling that once Screen Three came out and at least been out for a little while, that they might release a movie marathon of the three. So I just sort of kept tabs on that, and it was actually just Crown Village Crown did it. So I went in one night, 
by myself. I knew there'd be other fans there, but I was like, I'll go by myself and just did an all-nighter and just sat there. And I can finally say I saw the first movie on the big screen. See, I've never done it's It's on my list. When uh, when I see it on the Astor or something, I'm going to have to run and see it because I've never seen that. I've seen everything else at the cinema, but never never number one. So do you think... Um, so do you think, well, I guess that's maybe, I haven't asked you flat out, especially on a podcast while we're recording, uh, whether you put two above one, and maybe we'll wait till the end if you want to reveal that later. But just from my point of view, I sort of do wonder if the fact that I didn't see the first one have that experience at the cinema and seeing it on, at the end of the day, it was still a decent-sized TV, but, you know, watching it in pan scan on video on a, TV, uh, you know, a small TV and not really getting the full cinema experience, I wonder if that's why, for the second one, I feel like I put that above the first because I was able to... I was a fan of the first and I was so pumped for the second that I went in there and actually saw it at the cinema and, and went with friends that had seen the first one and there was all this buzz and excitement about it that I think I had a greater experience seeing the second one, That whether that's just taken it above the, the first. Well, there's a lot that this that the sequel does that helps that happen. And I think this is something that we've talked about a bit on the show and that I, I rate very highly when it comes to what makes a sequel good. Because we've spoken a lot in the past about a sequel can never be judged on its own merits because it, it, it by definition, is an extension. It's not its own film. It doesn't exist without the first film. So don't try and you know ignore the first film and one of the things that makes a good sequel good is the characters grow and you already have a relationship to them you don't have to do shit like backstory or building stuff you can dive right into the action of whatever this new story is going to be and screen two does all that so well and it takes the surviving characters and it picks them up it puts them in a, a new location but it is still a, a familiar world. You know, we've gone from a high school to a university. So it's not like we've gone from, oh, they were in high school and now they're all working on an oil rig. Like the, the world still feels like Scream. It feels like Woodsboro. You know, it's got all the same kind of beats to it. We've got new characters introduced. Again, you're at a university. It's very easy to introduce new characters. There's no shoehorning. You don't have to be like, oh, and also uh, remember in the summer between the movies when we didn't see you, you had that job and you became friends with that girl because you broke, like there's no crap. It's just like you're at a university. Yeah, there's new people. You've got Mickey and you've got Jerry O'Connell and you've got Elise Neely. Like you've got new people because why wouldn't you? So all of that is is really helped by the setting, but also the fact that none of the characters feel like they are trying to be different. You know, they're obviously trying to move past what happened, but sometimes when you get a sequel, you get characters and the sequel comes along, you're like, what the, what is going on here? An example is uh, uh, Don't Breathe. So the, the horror film from a couple of years ago about a blind guy who people break in his house, turns out he's like a, I don't know, martial arts expert, psychopath, whatever he is. And they just dropped the trailer for the sequel to Don't Breathe. And it looks like Taken, like suddenly this very evil man who does horrible things to women in his basement with turkey basters in the sequel is being pitched as like a john wick style like anti-hero retribution and and it just looks so different and so wrong like i i didn't fully dig the first one but i have no interest in the second one because like that's a different character you're just trying to move in a new direction i don't give a shit about that All right scream knew what it was knew what worked it took the characters it has the benefit of being filmed so close to the first one like production on Scream 2 started six months after Scream 1 came out. And they had to 
write in that it was two years after the original events because they were like, we've got to have some time for these characters to like not get attacked by a psycho. Otherwise it's too weird, but we're going to film it. And it was, I think it was a year, less than a year between the first one coming out and the second one coming out. Like it was quick. So all yep. the actors are kind of still in the zone. Every, everyone who works on the picture came back for the sequel, all the major players anyway. So you've got everyone who's kind of locked into screen mode. But what that does is as an audience, you immediately like, oh, I'm in safe hands. Like there's the familiar faces. We didn't have to awkwardly recast anyone, which, you know, so often happens in horror films. Uh, we didn't have to get a new screenwriter in who doesn't quite get it. Like they watched the first one, they get it, but they don't get it. You had a screenwriter who knew from the get-go they wanted to write a trilogy, which is something I don't think gets talked about enough anymore but when kevin williamson was writing screen not when it was filmed not when it was coming out when he was writing it he's like this is a trilogy and he pitched it as a trilogy so he, he knew what he wanted from these movies from the get-go so you know that you're in comfortable hands and you have a director who came back who saw an opportunity to do bigger badder bloodier cooler shit with this horror movie without the hindrance of heavy backstory not that scream is laden with heavy backstory but there is some stuff you've got to go through the mum's dead and she was murdered and there's this cotton weary guy in this court case and then also the mum might have been having an affair with the boyfriend's dad like there's a lot of exposition has to happen for the ending to kind of come around it's done very well and i would never complain about it i'm just saying it's there scream yeah. two you know she pulls off the mask billy's mother and everyone goes oh fuck yeah billy from the first one you don't have to like I think the, the most exposition we get after that is she goes, Mrs. Loomis, and he goes, Billy's mother. And then the other people who weren't there for the first one are like, what? Oh, wow. Like you don't even get her going, this is my ex-boyfriend who was the guy who tried to kill me two years ago. This is his mother who disappeared after my mother. Like none of that's there. It's just like, fuck you. See the first one. This is Billy's mother. Let's go. We're getting into the final scene. Like it's all the things that when done right, make a perfect sequel. So you don't, I, I don't think anyone should feel guilty for putting this above the first one. I don't think anyone should feel weird about it. I don't know. I can't split it. I think the first one is so good because it's, for me, I think it's a very original film. It's a very clever film. I think it holds up, you know, from 1996 right through the day. I've never once watched it and be like, you know, actually a bit flimsy. And the second one, it takes everything from the original and doesn't just, it doesn't improve the same story. It's like, we're going to move the story forward and find a way for you to not feel like, oh, this again. And that makes it the best on Monday. But on Tuesday, I watch the first one again. They go, yeah, you know, it's uh, that one's the best. I, I can never decide. I've never been able to decide. Uh, well, it's interesting you bring that up about the exposition of the first one. And I think maybe that's why, for me, this one succeeds is it doesn't get bogged down in having to give us too much exposition on what, especially what happened in the first one um, and, and even the characters in this one. Like you said, the characters are built in because they're at a, a university or a college. Um, so there's this natural, like, quick, you know, they don't get bogged down with, oh, she's got a new camera guy. She's got, you know, Gail's got a new camera guy. Like, she's got a book coming out. The movie's, you know, she wrote the book that's now the movie. And even, like, even, I guess, the little tie-in, you know, having the flashbacks of the movie within a movie and stuff like that, they, it just makes it a bit more snappy. And, and again, they don't, like I said, they don't get too bogged down in conversation about what happened last time, 
you know, there's stuff. I feel like even when we do get the exposition, it doesn't even feel like we're getting it because it is very natural well, in, no. the, in the conversation, like natural in yeah. the conversation and stuff like that. It, like the dialogue's so good that it, it just keeps keeps going. And even the movement, like I feel like even when Randy might say be saying something sort of referencing the first movies, he's walking along talking and it's quite quick and it's not like they're sitting down and having to have this full on explain it to the audience. So everyone knows what we're talking about. It's just very quick. And like I said, it, 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 it is predicated on you've seen the first one. I mean, you're Absolutely. pretty dumb going to the second one, which sometimes can but happen. But also sometimes. that being said, yeah. like if you would throw on Scream 2 for someone who'd never seen a Scream movie, who'd never seen a slasher movie, you can follow that movie a hundred percent. Like you might at some point be like, who's Billy? And then you go, oh, that's her boyfriend from the first one. He was a killer. And they go, oh, okay, cool. Like the scene where David Arquette and Jamie Kennedy are sitting in the cafeteria. And that's the closest I think you get to like a stagnant exposition scene. But it's so fun because everyone yep. knows it's a stagnant exposition scene. So let's do it. And he's like, okay, we're looking at Mickey. But if he's a suspect, I'm a suspect. So let's move on. He's like, well, maybe you are a suspect. He's like, well, if I'm a suspect, you're a suspect. And all the things that the audience is already thinking, like who's it going to be, they just like brush off the table in four seconds of very fun dialogue and then talk about how David Schwimmer is playing one of them in the movie and the other guy gets the coach driver from an episode of Dr. Quinn. Like they, the and this comes back to the writing obviously, but the writing is so slick in this film that you're just like, I don't need to know. Like, what do I know about Derek? He's pre-med. That's it. What do I know about Mickey? He's a film student. That's it. What do I know about Elise? Mickey uh, Tarantino uh, films. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you learn the bare minimum, which isn't just fun as an audience because you get to dive in. It's also a great device for a whodunit because the information, you don't really want the information because who gives a shit, but it's a neat way of withholding it because what do you mm. actually know about Mickey? Nothing. What do you actually know about Derek? Nothing. What's, I keep calling her Elise Neal and that's the actor. I can't remember the name of... Hallie? Hallie, Hallie, Hallie. Which um, I, it's funny because when you said Elise Neal before, I actually thought to myself, oh, she's often got no character name too. And that's, that's terrible for someone that's probably watched this movie over a hundred times. Um, but you're right. I mean, even... Um, Oh, now, uh, Dwayne Martin's uh, character, uh, the cameraman, like even that, he's his sort of backstory. You get a quick, oh, I did the bingo finals and I did this, but yes, he's a relatively unknown. And again, that's an, another good, like you said, it's a good way of going, well, we don't know too much about him. Why is he here? Why is he the, you know, if he's going to do this awesome job for Gail, why has he got no, not much experience and is he a killer? So, um, yeah, and but it also lends so well because we get such a brief little backstory about him so that when we get a brief little backstory about Mrs. Loomis, it's like, Oh yeah, I'm a reporter from what, like, that's just what happens in this world. Like each character gets a one second bio and then you move back to the main sort of three core characters. So you never think, well, hang on. They never really explained Laurie Metcalf's character. They just kind of like, you know, you never think of it because you're like, yeah, that's how everyone gets introduced in this movie. And then they're gone. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's brilliant. If they use one of the potentially shittest things about a movie, which is, oh yeah, we have no idea what this character is doing here, and they turn into a huge plus. It just rock solid. So I guess looking at this movie and you compare it to the first, again, if we we're trying to compare apples to oranges, like you said, I mean, you can't always necessarily, uh, you know, apply the same critical analysis to a sequel to the original, but I mean, for me personally, I, it, it just jumped out at me 
right from the get-go when they started announcing some of the people are going to be in the cast for this movie. Um, you know, even back then, I, I guess I probably wasn't looking at money and, and you know, IMD was probably, IMDB was probably something that was there, but not really huge at the time. The well, internet we was for of, nerds in 1997. Yeah, no it was still, it. yeah. Um, but you could definitely tell right from the get-go, you know, the first screen was a very low budget movie. They even call it kind of an indie film. Uh, yeah. Miramax slash Dimension did it at the time. And it was definitely, it was definitely on the lower scale of things. And then it was like, bang, it went bang. And they go, oh, hang on, we can do this movie again. And they got, like you said, it was such a quick turn, but they got that, you know, the red, the green light. And then it was like, oh, well now everybody wants to be in this movie. All the, 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 the great, the great talent in Hollywood, everyone wants a piece of this movie. From it, like, not just the actors, but even like if you look at the soundtrack, the amount of um, decent band names that are on that that's, soundtrack. It's all that almost like everyone's just on repeat for me growing up. There was yeah. such great tracks, <laughs> and and I think that's one of definitely one of my favorite uh, movie soundtracks of all time because I think they did get, you know, all these great bands are going. Geez, I want a piece of this. I want to be. This is the coolest thing in town at the moment. Is being part of the Scream franchise. So. And then obviously you had Jada Pinkett Smith come on board. Uh, you had um, Sarah Michelle Gellar, you know, even like just little pop-ins from Joshua Jackson in, in one of the scenes. Um, you know, Portia de Rossi. Um, there was yeah, Rebecca Gayhart, Omar Epps. Yep. Like so there was all these people that, you know, wanted to be part of this movie. And I think, and I mean, sorry, uh, Jerry O'Connell, um, you know, like it, it was like I said this to someone else before, it was it's definitely the sexier movie as well. Like I just think they just the color, the lighting, just like I said before, the location of a, a, a college campus. Not to say no one was beautiful in the first one, but I feel like in this one, everyone is more beautiful and aesthetically amazing to the eye. Um, it, like even someone like Jamie Kennedy, Randy, he kind of looks cooler in this movie too. Like there's something, there's something about him in the first one. He's kind of like, yeah, he's the nerd, he's the geek, he knows the movies. But in this one, he kind of he's still that same person. But it's almost something to do with the hair, his his actual hair, and then a little bit of facial hair. He sort of looks like he's dressed better. Um, I mean, Sydney Prescott, uh, Nev Campbell is amazingly sexy in this movie compared to uh, the first movie. She's got they did her very well in the first movie where she had that innocent sort of look, almost like dressed like an oldie, a bit like grandma, kind of not, not too, um, well, no, I, mean, I guess she's not too, not too sexualized. Jamie Lee Curtis. She's, yeah. She's Laurie Strode from Halloween one. Yeah. So, and, and then but in this one, and this one, she just, the hair's dif- different. And I guess it was the fashion like at the time the too. Angle bob, And she's got like a leather jacket now. She's, she's wearing um, boots. Like she's a badass. And then you had um, Courtney Cox, who again, like she was my crush for a long time when I was a kid. So, I nice mean, I mean, streaks. And, and I, yeah, exactly. And it's like one of the yeah. best lines in yeah. any film. Oh. And then, yeah, and 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 but even the way they've done her, they make it kind of a little bit trashy, but still sexy and um, trashy in a very nineties way, though. Like trashy yeah. was like you know when Christina became ex Dina, and it was all about you know really obvious dye jobs and midriffs and chains and ripped jeans. When when grunge went mainstream and trashy became sexy, that's. A perfect little Venn diagram in the middle. It's Courtney Cox and Scream Two. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. And I, yeah, I think yeah, just the money they splashed on it. Uh, you know, even the promotion of this movie, 
I don't even know if they needed to promote the hell out of it too much, but they definitely spent, I think from what I remember reading many years ago, I think the budget for the first movie was close to 20 mil and they alone just spent 20 million on promoting the hell out of this movie. And I remember, especially in Australia, I remember seeing the posters everywhere. I remember seeing, yeah, remember seeing on buses and just everywhere. Like you couldn't, you couldn't actually not miss it. Like you couldn't not know the movie Scream. You didn't have to have seen it, but you knew about it. And that 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 typical or that that poster that you see the most of, where um, Courtney Cox is in the middle and the little face is spread out. Yeah, I mean you can't you couldn't have missed that. That was just everywhere that poster. Um, yeah. And it's that poster. Yeah. Like that poster holds a special place in my heart because I've got it from the video store. You had to like go in and put your name on posters straight away, so you could get them. They give them for free, but you just got like. And when it came down, it went into my house and it went in my bedroom, like above the TV in my bedroom, which was opposite my bed. So like every night when I went to sleep, I saw the Scream 2 poster. And every morning I woke up, I saw the Scream 2 poster. And that was like, just became associated with my happy place and comfort. And then when I went to like university, I took it down, I took it with me. It was like the only poster on my wall at university. And so often people were like, why is the only poster in your room Scream 2? What is happening? And then I like, I went to a share house and it was like that, I think... I had that poster until maybe five years ago when it was just, it was so ripped and shredded and creased. And I was like, I just got to let it go. I got to, I just got to give this up. It's a, it's a relic. But as soon as I got rid of it, I reckon like, a week later, it. I, was like I was on eBay. I was like, I'm going to find me a new script. <laughs> <laughs> like straight away. Cause it's just, it's, it's great. It looks cool. It is cool. It's, it's screen too. Um, looking through the cast of this film, it's, you were talking about how everyone's beautiful and how everyone wants to be in it, but it's insane. Like this movie came out in 1997. So if you think about all of the movies that came out around that era and all of the people who were stars, you know, Hollywood is Hollywood and it's no surprise to anyone that it takes in beautiful young people and it chews them up and it spits them out. And so there's a lot of people who have careers when they're early twenties and gorgeous who do not have careers or whose names we do not know anymore, who really populated a lot of the films that came up in this decade. So if you go down the cast list, like Jada Pinkett Smith, still very famous. Omar Epps, uh, Heather Graham. I mean, Heather Graham is an Academy Award nominee now. Uh, keep going down. You get uh, Leif Schreiber. Leif Schreiber? Like this, he, remember yeah. in the first one, he's just in a news report. And yeah. then he's friggin' Ray Donovan and everyone loves Leif Schreiber. Uh, all of the main cast are still all, like David Schwimmer, uh, David, Schwimmer David Arquette, apart from a little... Uh, sideways move into pro wrestling for a few years. He's still a known name and can still be in movies. Joshua Jackson is still famous. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Timothy Oliphant. God damn, Timothy Oliphant is one of the most famous people from this cast. Jamie Kennedy, Jerry O'Connell. Uh, like they're all, Laurie Metcalf is still famous. Uh, Portia Del Rossi is super famous now. Rebecca Gayhart is still around. She's still doing stuff. One of the dancers in uh, Carmen the Musical is Adam Shankman, who not everyone will know, but he is a big time director producer now he directed hairspray the musical but he produces a lot of big tv shows now and if it's got singing or dancing or like teenagers singing it's probably produced by adam shankman now like the, the list goes on and on this film somehow I, it feels like an accident managed to cast a phenomenal amount of people well, even said uh, really really talented and Dwayne martin i mean he was pretty big at the time too and he, you know, him and Omar Epps and even Jada Pinkett Smith, and, and it's another interesting thing, and we won't just 
you know go too far off the track here but obviously we were sort of brought in because it was one of the criticisms of the first movie was it was very white oh yeah there were no black people in woodsboro none so it was it was very much about you know having a piss take on themselves but also making some sort of you know political statement but Dwayne Martin at the time when he was in this he was big and up and coming and done a couple of big films that are you know sort of the boys in the hood type stuff um and then the other one who's one of the older person people in the cast is David Warner who's you know plays the uh theater teacher and he is he's amazing too and he's actually uh He's actually in the movie I was named after too. So, I mean, he's you know for him what even. What movie were you named after? Uh, the Ballad of Cable Hogue. Ah, there you go. So, and David Warner is one of the main characters in that movie, and um, yeah, I know even just him being in it. I mean, it's not a huge part, but again, it's it's not just some random old bloke. It's David Warner who's yeah had a huge career. Like. The, like- Tori Spelling has a cameo. Luke Wilson plays Stab Billy. Like yep. there's there's so many, pretty much every scene you look, you're like, fuck, that's that person. They're still famous. They're still here. Like they're still going. And there's not a lot of horror movies from, you know, 20 something years ago that you can look at and be like, oh yeah, they're still going and going strong. Yeah, I Everyone mean. Everyone is doing well. It, well, it, it blows your mind now, now that you've brought that up too. Like you think about, some movies that actually have these Zoom reunions and stuff like that because there's so much of a cult following for a particular film. I think Scream, uh, not Scream, I almost said Scream 3. I'm pretty sure maybe not uh, Halloween, no, not even Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, I think. Three or four or five, one of those ones. Um, they had a cast Zoom thing and it was all, all these fans got involved and it was just almost like this Comic-Con just for this one Nightmare on Elm Street. That's, movie. I think that's three. I think that's Dream Warriors. That's like yeah. the, and one that, of the most beloved because yeah. Dream Four, uh, the Nightmare Four is it's weird and it's not good. Yeah. So I mean, but you think about that happening. If you ever wanted a slasher flick to have everyone come back and have this huge event, it'd have to be Scream Two. Like if you could get as many of those people back, you know how many tickets you'd sell, <laughs> and it'd be just an awesome, awesome night. Like that's just. That's but the think, that's the pinnacle of uh, slasher flick, flick uh, you know, sort of, you know, Comic Con slash Zoom reunion type scenarios. I reckon. I think part of that is a director who has a lot of respect for their their audience, for the horror audience. Obviously, Wes Craven, one of the you know the the godfathers of horror movies, um, especially the slasher genre. And somebody spent a lot of time kind of wallowing in the shadows because people are like, yeah, slashers ain't shit, like whatever. And he, he was making elevated and interesting and iconic slasher films that will never go away and never die. But I think him coming back to do the sequel to Scream and making sure like, A, he got that core cast back. because And that's the thing that I, I think a lot of people don't think about. After the first one was such a big hit, all of the actors' prices went the fuck up. So this movie didn't cost more to make just because they put more in. This movie costs more to make because the actors cost more money. Like you're not paying a lot of money for Neve Campbell in Scream 1, but you're paying a fuck ton for Scream 2. And Courtney Cox, I think, was the highest paid by a long way in Scream 1. And she got paid on Scream 2. Like, but most producers be like, it's a it's a slasher movie for teens. Like get a new cast, recast someone, or just like do a new story with different cast members. Who gives a shit? Which is why when you watch so many horror movies, the sequel has none of the original cast or 
the original person comes back for the opening, gets the head cut off, or is recast with a new actor. Like it's it's rare that you'll have the same core cast come back not once, not twice, but five times now. We're well, it's funny you say that. You sort of think to yourself, like obviously, um, Gail, the character Gail Weathers is a really good character, and then so that means Courtney Cox is important to the to the movie. I guess Neil Campbell and then David Arquette too. Well, I mean, those three have all been, you know, been in all, all five movies. But like you said, like if Courtney was getting paid a shitload, you kind of go, well, that's a good enough reason for us to kill her <laughs> because we don't have yeah. to pay her next time around unless you wanted a yeah. flashback or something like that. But Kill Gail Weathers and you don't have to fork out as much money for the next one and you still get the, the benefit of Gail Weathers because you can talk about her without her being there. Yeah. Uh, but but you make a, a good point. I think it, it it does show how different the Scream franchise is. You know, even though it lends itself uh, to slasher flicks and and talks about them, um, they still do it slightly different enough. Or it's got it's almost got this extra prestige. Like there's slasher flicks and then there's Scream, and it's like on another tier. They give it that just that something extra that you go, oh, well, we can keep some of these people around a bit longer and we'll pay them the good money because we know they bring something to the the franchise. And I wonder with Scream if a part of that is what we're talking about before. Like we saw the the Scream 1 and Scream 2 films at that very formative part of our lives in the the mid to late 90s. And they they were the reigniting of the slasher franchise, like all of the other slasher films that came out in sort of the rest of the 90s and in the early 80s were really like just trying to capture what Scream had done. And Scream was so successful at reigniting the genre that it became like a snake eating its tail. And Kevin Williamson was then brought on to reignite the Halloween franchise, which was a big part of the inspiration for the Scream franchise. And we get Halloween H2O coming in around, I think it was around 98, somewhere around there, trying to bring in all of the the people who are watching the screen movies but all the people who watch the halloween movies even you know people who are our age and were watching them when we were, were teenagers were watching an old movie you know you're watching halloween and nightmare on elm street and uh what's the other and friday the 13th you're watching old movies and you're like these are great this is so cool but the only way you're watching them is you're getting shitty old VHS tapes from the video store. You're bringing them home. Maybe your buddies are around. You get some pizza. You sit there. You watch these movies. You're not experiencing them in real time. Whereas Scream was the first one for our generation that we got to experience in real time. Our parents didn't put us onto Scream or mm. our older brothers or sisters didn't put us on the screen. Like we went and watched that goddamn movie. Like not at the cinemas maybe for you and I, but we watched it like the second it came out on VHS and then the sequel, we were in the cinema opening weekend. And then the third one. And like, this is our slasher craze we were just old enough to be allowed to see it and just young enough to really appreciate how freaking cool slashes are with none of the cynicism we just wanted to watch cool shit happen whereas all the other movies they're they're old movies even as much as i love them like when i was a teenager halloween was old as shit <laughs> but it's still a great movie and you're right screen, you, and you, now and you're watching it on a vhs that's been watched how many times how many thousands of times and the tapes deteriorate and there's parts of the tape that are, are fucked and so yeah, it just yeah. goes buzzing it's like, and you're yeah. like oh that guy's dead no. i didn't see what happened yeah that, oh that's where the tape snapped and they've just taped it back together <laughs> and stuff like that so you're right i mean i guess from that point we we got to live it in real time so i guess that just elevates it so much more but i still feel like you know, they took this indie movie that just went ballistic and they go, yeah. oh, Kevin Williams had this plan. It was obviously well-written 
and it was a homage to everything he'd seen before and, and you know all horror films but they were able to do it in such a way and i think i think why scream at least the trilogy works so well is that we're also in an era where the horror uh, the blood and the guts is more realistic than it ever was before i think you look back and and you know like I said, when I was younger, the first time I saw, you know, snuck a little bit of a, you know, nightmare on Elm Street and like, you see the blood, like, as a, you know, well, five or six-year-old or however old you were and however old I was. But at that young age, to me, you see that blood, that's blood. But now you yeah. look back and go, oh, yeah. oh, that's way too red and that's definitely not blood. And you well, can famously, kind of see- Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween has no blood. There's yeah. the, in, There's no blood and also not many kills, but, like, there's no blood in that movie. So, yeah, Wes Craven was like, we're going to slice and dice these, these yeah. up. But again, they, they make it look realistic enough that I think that's that's what makes it just seem, well, I guess more realistic. It just it, It's more brutal um, and you can't, oh, that looks so fake. Like, I mean, how many, I mean, can you think of anything in the Scream franchise that you go, oh, that looked a little bit, so, oh, yeah, I could see the wires or I could see that was clearly a, a dummy or whatever. Like, it all looks so well done. Yeah, well, I mean, especially if we're talking screen two, like none of it, uh, none of it seems like, you know, if you start the start where uh, Jada Pinkett Smith gets like stabbed in the guts and she's up on stage and she's coughing blood and she's holding her bloody wounded stomach. Like, I thankfully have never seen someone stabbed to death in a cinema, but I imagine that's pretty close. Like there might be more blood and more screaming, but that's pretty good like it's not over the top it's not dumbed down it's like yeah she looks like she just got stabbed in the fucking stomach the i guess the only thing like if i don't know we can try and nitpick for the sake of good podcasting but the only part go nitpick we need a nitpick in, we can't... In realistic the only thing that ever stuck out as me is like what is uh is omar epps getting stabbed through the bathroom wall like the yeah the, the cubicle door uh like that wood is pretty strong and pretty thick and that knife is not that thick. Like the strength, it was, I'm going to presume it was Mickey that did that one. I'm sure yeah. there's people on the internet who've like gone through. In fact, there is. There's a yes. YouTube. I can't remember yeah. people can be like, this is who did what. Oh, it, still get, it, still gets the, it still gets the bait. I remember when the internet, like you said, that, that late 90s, early 2000s, when it was still you had to almost be a bit of a nerd or you were doing homework and you needed Wikip- a, a version of Wikipedia to do work. There was a screen website up or a fan website, and it was one of those things where they debated every kill, who did it, and this is the evidence, and this is what we think, and who was on the phone, and all that. So you're right. Well, but I mean, Olsen is pretty jacked in this movie. So I, and I've seen like plenty of interviews where he's a big guy, he's a tough guy, you know, he, he looks like he could handle himself. So I could believe in a movie world he could, you know, slam a knife through a door and into someone's head. Also with perfect accuracy, because to see where Omar Epps' head is, he'd have to stand up on the bowl and look over and be like, oh, he's around about there. So if I go there, like that's probably the most outlandish thing that happens in this film. And you know what? I don't give a shit because it's cool. (laughs) It's a cool kill. It's the first time I saw it made me jump. Do you know, it's funny you bring that kill up as well, because I think that's probably, in in fairness, if we want to go for realism and, and like you said, nitpick, I think it's definitely the one that is really relies on chance. And like you said, he, him actually getting the knife through that wall, but also hitting the right spot. I mean, 
he'd almost have to have had a peek over the top to almost look at me like get get and also he would have i mean it's just hope he would have to hope that phil would hear that weird little whispering and lean his ear up against it i i've been in a lot of public toilets and over the time i have heard (laughs) people making weird noises and i don't listen i get the fuck out like I've gone into a cubicle and I've heard someone in the cubicle next to me like, and I'm like, nope. Yeah. And it's not just because I want to scream too. It's like, I don't want to be around that. I'm going to go somewhere yeah. else. And I leave. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like, perhaps we're meant to read into that, that Mickey and Phil have a class together and he knows that secretly Phil is a bit of a freak and he's a bit of a perv. And if he hears someone making noises in a bathroom, he's going to put his head up against it. Cause so he can listen. Cause he's a bit of a freak. Like, and this is a long bow to draw, but I mean, yeah. To get all of that to come together so he kill him. Because the other thing is, if he doesn't kill him, the whole thing falls apart and he's back in his seat and then he can't go sit in Phil's seat and kill Maureen, which is really the kill that he wants because they're trying to recreate Scream. So they need to kill someone called Maureen first so that they can start it all over again because she's Maureen Prescott. So that that is probably the only part of this film we like. What? But again, the kill is so cool you don't need the logic. Like I, I think with horror movies in general, you need one or the other. You need a kill to be fucking cool or you need it to make sense. It doesn't have to do both. It's when you get like boring kills that make no sense. It's like, oh, he threw the knife, but around the door. So the knife was somehow a boomerang and swung around and then hit him in the knee. What? Like that's when it falls apart. You do something cool. It's like, I don't need to know where he got the chainsaw. He just cut that guy into six pieces. That was dope. I don't care. Like I just want to see cool stuff in a horror movie. So it's it's a lot of well done or well explained stuff in in all the screen movies. I think. I'm you know, it's funny. You know, not to labour on the point too much, but I reckon the first time when that kill happened, like I was, oh my god, how awesome was that? But my my take on it, and visually what I saw was not a wooden sort of wall. The way it was designed, I actually looked for it was like like a piece of a, a piece of uh, rock slash marble type partition. It's got and that, that look, doesn't and, it? And, and that was what threw me. It's like, how is that even happening? And then it's like, when you go back, you go, well, it obviously has to be some sort of wood that has that look of marble, just happens to sort of look like stone or something yeah, like it's that. Like and, masonite with but, the, the laminate. Yeah. So um, that's where I think, and I agree with you. It's like, yeah, that, that, that buck knife can do some damage, but I, I, I just wonder the strength of the wood or what wood's up there because you'd want it to be pretty much chipboard for it to be getting cleaned yeah. straight through like that. But uh, we won't we won't say that point. But, I mean, that you know, we don't see, see a hell of a lot of blood for that one, but that is a brutal no, kill. Just a bit out of the mouth. And, it, it's, yeah. and it's a cool kill. And that's the thing. Like, one of the, the rules of, you know, magic and, and filmmaking is you never do the same trick twice. You, if you're going to do something, the opening of screen, with Drew Barrymore as Casey Becker getting hunted down and like right up until the moment where the knife goes in, you're like, how's she going to get away from this? Like, how's she going to get out of this one? And then she gets murdered and you're like, wait, what? How, how is Drew Barrymore dead before the credits? She's Drew Barrymore. She's on the poster. She's she's the famous one. What the fuck? And then the sequel, like again, Jada Pinkett Smith and Omar Epps in 997 and no names. They're on like Jada Pinkett Smith is on the poster. You're in the opening. You've got these two new characters like, oh, okay, cool. Where are we going? And knowing the first movie, like, well, they're not going to kill them before the credits because that's what they did in the last movie. And even though I was like, well, I, you know, I wonder where this is going, but they're not going to kill them. 
when it happened, I was still like, holy shit. I wasn't like, oh, again? I was like, holy shit. They, and they, you know, up the ante straight away by killing two people pre-credits, not just one. But they do the same thing they do in the first movie and you don't, you don't notice and you don't care. You're just like, wow, that was really cool. That's a cool kill. That's two cool kills. That's amazing. And they pull it off without a hitch, I think. And I think we haven't talked about yet, but the, the kills, particularly Marine's kill, happens in one of the coolest settings. Oh, well, you know, I was going, you just read my mind. You just Jedi mind tricked and pulled that out of my life. Because <laughs> I was I was literally about to say that's one of the other things just about this movie just for me elevates it. It was this thing, Simon, you see the dimension title come up and then it opened up this awesome stab premiere at this really cool old school sort of cinema and people lined up to go in and, and you know, having the tickets and then having the, the, the costumes and stuff like that. It kind of is, again, if you want to really um, break it down, and I, I didn't want to do this, but I have watched the Honest trailer for, um, or the Movie Sins trailer <laughs> yep. for this, yeah. where they absolutely bag the hell out of this movie. Um, it is one of those ones that is a little bit over the top, like, would this actually really happen? But I just think just the location of that cinema and having it, that really old school look. I just love that. I, I love that it wasn't, you know, a man's Chinese theater in Hollywood or, no. or a famous cinema. I like how they kind of gave it just that look. It could be like the West Garth cinema in, in Northgirt or something like that. Like just this, not multiplex, just a nice sort of one, two screen cinema and have this really cool scene in it. And yeah, it just set the tone for me as well. Um, like you said, and having that great debate when they're walking in there, you know, talking about going to see Sandra Bullock or, you know, talk about, I guess, black people in, in, in slasher yes, films. Like referencing and, it right out the gate. And cinema, like, yeah. And no white people in the first one. We acknowledge it. We're talking about it right up front. We're rectifying yeah. it. Like, yes, it was a, it was a mistake. It was an oversight. Uh, and here we are talking about it, but also just like, because getting to see it in a cinema, sitting in a cinema mm. and there's something very, um, and a very unsettling, I think, in in being in a cinema and watching people in peril in a cinema. You know, whenever that happens, there's always that sense of like, oh, like that's that's me. Like if someone was standing at the back of the cinema looking at this and something bad happened, that's what they'd see. And it's obviously a very deliberate trick in this movie. And then the movie goes on to be, you know, a movie about movies within movies, and it has a movie within them and keeps spiraling up. But to have a setup for a the opening of a movie be people in a cinema watching the movie version of the first movie, which obviously is real life in their world, which such a great conceit, like stab be like setting up a cinematic universe inside of the movie. Brilliant. But then watching that be the setting for the murder to take place when you're sitting in the cinema, I think is such a fun experience, such a fun way to start it. Like, and, and also paralleled a lot of the first one. Cause when I watched, the first movie i was at home in a house it wasn't as nice as casey becker's house or as big but it was a house very similar like big yard out in the middle of nowhere like not a lot of people around if i want to go anywhere you know it's it's a hike i'm not just going to stroll next door to the neighbors there's no one around so if someone wants to come and smash in my window so you're not going down to the you're not going down to the mckenzie's exactly so, i'm not running down to the kenzies if i run out of the house being chased by a killer i've got a run before i get to someone else so i was in there i was like wow like if someone did that to me i'd be in casey becker situation and then the sequel i'm in the cinema watching with everyone i'm like wow someone decided to stab me in the guts right now i'd be in maureen's situation and 
that I think plays a lot into the the love of it, but also just such a brilliant way to do it. Like acknowledge right out of the gate, like, okay, you're watching a movie, but we're going to make you forget you're watching the movie by having the characters watch a movie about the movie that is the original movie to the sequel that this movie is so that you guys can get lost in that for a minute. And it kind of shakes you out of that whole, oh yeah, I'm watching Scream 2. It's like, no, 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 no. Now you're in it. You're in the world. And you just get carried away with that and you never really let get, get let go. And it's a really, it's one of the, the best setups for a film and one of the best openings to a horror film that I can think of. Like it's yeah. just oh, one hundred percent. I think genius. And, and and to tell you a little uh, funny Scream Two story, so I actually saw Scream Two in Queensland. Okay. So when I was a kid, for a couple of years, uh, Dad worked in Queensland or worked in Brisbane. So we li- obviously lived up there. And so a couple of kids I met, you know, got you know obviously fr- was friends with in high school. Um, you know, I'd come back to Melbourne by then and then the movie was coming out and I was actually going up. So one of the kids I was good mates with, he came down to Melbourne for the last sort of summer school holidays the year before. And then I was going up to Queensland to stay up there for a couple of weeks, blah, blah, blah. So of course I'm going up armed with the knowledge of Scream 2 is coming out. Scream thinking, oh, you, you guys know about Scream. And then, so a bunch of these guys I went to school with, they hadn't seen Scream. I'm like, so it was really cool. I was the guy that introduced them to Scream. I'm like, let's go hire that. So we got to You're watch that. Yeah. So I got to internet and they're like, oh my God, that's awesome. And then there was this awesome sort of getting pumped up for uh, Scream 2. And then I remember one of the guys goes, oh, I know where can we can get the masks. And I'm like, what? And that, you know, just blew my mind. Like, we can get a mask. So we went down to one of the shops or, you know, down at the, the local Westfield or whatever it was. And he's like, you know, went, went to this particular shop and we got a couple of the, the, the masks. And then, so we went to the cinema with these masks and then they had this scene <laughs> and, and it was like blowing us away. And then one of the guys who was a bit of a, a class clown and a bit of a risk taker and didn't care and like have a, a bit of a gag, he actually put the mask on and went up to a few people, just like touch them on the shoulder, turn around, just you know, give them the, the a jump scare <laughs> on the cinema, and then it, it went pear shaped when he did go up behind one guy who I think was his girlfriend. He was a decently sized bloke, and he just like panicked and just swung the fist and, and got my mate, and so dropped him. <laughs> um, so it was kind of funny, but then I think that's again why it elevates that experience. Is like like we brought the mask, and it was kind of like you said, it just felt like we were part of that movie and that experience. Because here we are watching the movie within a movie, in the movies, and yeah, it's just yeah, there's so I'm many layers. To it, in the movie. So it's so many layers, Amazing. but um, yeah, I, I like even think like Scream Five. If you you all went all dressed up, like what would people think? But I mean, people do that for those big movies these days. So they do, but that's an interesting one because it's a horror movie, and Scream Two, you know, there's a, a killing in the cinema, and in nine oh seven, like that's such a great thing. But now we live in an age where people have gone into movie theaters in costume and then shot people up and killed them. So we're going to get, you know, if we all get dressed up and go and hang out in cinemas, are we going to get people who are like, no? Which, was that one of the Batman movies recently? Yeah, a guy dressed up as, uh, to go and see The Dark Knight, he dressed up as yeah. the Joker. Or to go and see Dark Knight Rises, I think. Yeah, he dressed okay. up as the Joker and then pulled out a big old gun and killed a bunch of people. And that was pretty, mm. pretty crazy. Um but yeah, it's it's not as uh, I guess it's not as innocent as it was, particularly with a horror movie. You know, people get dressed up as Iron Man and stuff to go and see the movies, or Harry Potter, or things like that. And you're like, yeah. But if you see someone dressed as a serial killer, you're probably like, 
Um, I'm a little afraid. Can I tell you another quick story that's not, it, it's scream related and it just shows that maybe, maybe I'm a little bit psychotic anyway, or maybe I think like a killer, but <laughs> a few, quite a few years ago. And this, again, it's just funny how the world works and how like, even in my head, I'm, I'm thinking of a movie, maybe I'm too much like a Randy and I was like thinking everything meta, but so the university that I went to, um, some of the guys I got to be good friends with, we sort of helped out the surf club at the university and helped plan their sort of trips for the, a lot of the international students to go down the Great Ocean Road, all that sort of stuff. And a few of those guys decided they would get a house nearby to the university, like live there, and they called it the fraternity, the frat house. Um, because, I mean, we, let's be honest, like, I mean, you know, fraternities and all that sort of stuff is not an Australian thing. It's a very American no. thing. And we, we learn all that things through the, we learn all that stuff through the movies, whether it's old school or it's Animal House, all these movies that really rely on that fraternity sort of life. Um, so one or two of the guys were from the US, so it was very big for them. They're like, oh, we can have parties here. And they got this really old sort of big house, but it was on a big property. And then a few of the Aussie students that I was good mates with, they live there as well. And they were having a Halloween party. So obviously there was all this, you know, hullabaloo about, you know, dressing up. And for whatever reason, I don't know why I couldn't be there for the start of the party, but it worked absolutely amazing, unintentionally amazing for me. So before I was a Ghostbuster, a few of the boys actually went as Ghostbusters and all the girls were dressed kind of a bit like mean girls. It's like a reason to be a little bit slutty. Um, and I went in my ghost face mask and cape slash whatever you want to call it. And I rocked up to the party, but funnily enough, someone had actually already done that. So I got there, say maybe nine, nine 30. Someone was already dressed like that. And he's, he was a German guy called Tom and he was a student at Latrobe university as well. But I was walking around that room and a few people kept calling me Tom. And I'm like, <laughs> this is crazy because I could actually go if I really wanted to, and I had a knife and I want to, be a psych well, be a psycho killer i could have done it and everyone would have pinned tom for it because nobody knew i rocked up in that costume and <laughs> everyone thought i was somebody else because he'd already appeared in that costume taking off the mask ah it's tom and then it was like it was just weird going through my mind i was like i could do anything i wanted right here and <laughs> and no one would actually suspect me yeah they might find you were living in a screen movie you're living in the yeah, it was kind of crazy and it was kind of similar to again, like the opening of the screen, too. It's like, well, you've got a guy that just puts on a mask and they're in a room with 200 people with these same masks, and you know, under that camouflage, he's able to knife uh, Maureen. And and yeah, it's just yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? All of the the beats in this movie, like we we haven't really talked much about what happened, but all the beats yeah. in this film that come along seem to it's, it's almost like a whole bunch of self-resolving moments but that also catapult it forward so like the cinema thing it's its own moment like it's all set up you could just watch that as a short film and be like wow it's pretty cool but then it propels it to the next bit it's like oh there's been murders you know while people were watching a movie about stab you know what does that mean and that leads us straight into uh, sydney and randy straight away like they're back because obviously they hear about it and then people went to their school which then drags back Dewey, which drags back Gail, and then the whole the whole crew gets back together, and we get get down and dirty. And it it's interesting. Like the the more I watch it, the more I've started to realize that it's a film that 
is perfectly set up to constantly hold your attention, but never dwell on anything long enough to let you kind of drift, which I think a lot of films now go real hard and real fast because they don't want people reaching for their phones. And there's kind of like, like if you watch a Marvel movie now, it's like, there's a cut like every nine seconds or something. It's like, bam, 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 bam. And this movie doesn't do that. It just keeps giving you like moments and then resolves them. So you have like, uh, like I talked about before, like you have Dewey and Randy talking about who the suspects could be uh, and whether or not they could be suspects and how they can't be suspects, but maybe they are suspects. And then you kind of have that bam, bam, bam. And then you moved on from that. And you, as an, an audience member, even though it's a whodunit movie, and obviously the the director wants you to think anyone could be the killer, and they talk about the fact this is a sequel, anyone could be the killer. You know, you got to watch out, Sid. We we're never belaboured on who it could be. It's never like maybe it was Dewey, maybe it was Randy. Like it's just like oh, it could be them. Then we move on, and it's like okay, well maybe uh, it could be Gail, and then they quickly get rid of the fact it could be Gail. And then like cotton shows up and cotton, like maybe it is cotton, but I don't know, but they don't labor on any of it. It's like, here's a moment, bam, done. And the reason that stuck out to me is because so many horror movies now, especially whodunits, they keep frigging coming back to the well and like, Hey, maybe it was that guy. And like one of the boyfriends would be creepy. And they're like, he's creepy. Ah, oh, yeah, but no, that's just how he is. And then the characters are like, mm, I don't know. And then as an audience member, we're left for the whole movie constantly having it rubbed in her face like maybe it's the boyfriend maybe it's the boyfriend maybe it's the boyfriend and at the end it's like some character who hasn't been in the movie at all and you're like what what why did you and that obviously is is lazy writing bad writing like oh the way we'll hide who did it is we'll just keep telling you it was someone else until the final reveal is it's a character that you haven't met yet whereas in scream it's like no 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 we're just going to give you all these characters we're going to give the internal logic of why we don't think it's the killers but we're not going to tell you what to do we're also not going to tell you who it is. We're just going to keep playing out these moments for you. And you're going to keep being dragged along in this, or not dragged. You're going to keep being ushered along in this ride very lovingly until you get to the end. And you're like, oh my God, the movie's finished. And I didn't even really sit around and wonder what the hell was going on. There's no part of this film that makes you go, huh? And it, it stuck out as me as well. Cause I recently rewatched Scream 3, which I love and I'm a big fan of, but is very, obviously written by a different writer Aaron Kruger yep. was brought in and we didn't get Kevin Williamson's dialogue and the opening of Scream 3 Cotton Weary in traffic talking to someone who is a wrong number and they've got a sexy voice and I, I like that movie and every time I watch it I'm like I don't know why this gets such a bad rap I like this movie but watching it recently I was like don't worry we'll get to that we'll get to that in the this, this, this opening drags like the opening of Scream 3 drags it takes a long time to get where it's going and I think part of like setting a scene in a traffic jam, like being in a traffic jam is boring. There's no exciting way to be in a traffic jam. And even once like Cotton starts to think, oh no, something's wrong. And he tries to like smash around cars and stuff and the music changes. It's still like, yeah, we're just watching a dude stuck in traffic. Like this is a slow way to open a film. And it, it, then when you go back to screen two, you're like, oh, okay, there's no slow points. There's no moments that drag this down. And then you watch other movies like, oh, there's movies that drag this down. And it, it's just something that's become more apparent to me as the years have gone on. This movie, it doesn't move at a cracking pace. There's plenty of movie to breathe and for you to develop relationships with the characters. The brilliant scene of Derek singing, I think I love you in the cafeteria, you know, which erases all doubt that he's the killer in Sydney's mind, but also as an audience makes us go, oh God, I hope he's not the killer. Because I love him now. I know this character in that he's a goofball romantic. You get all those moments, but you never feel like, can we just skip this and get to a fucking kill? Because 
sure enough, as soon as you get through that moment, you, you get a kill. Like it's it's perfectly paced. You're right. I think it, it's paced, but like you said, it, it, it moves around all the characters enough that you get a taste of everybody. Everyone's sort of, I guess, where everyone you think are, like, like you said, it's a bit of a whodunit, but it's like, oh, hang on, I haven't seen him for a while. And then the next scene, it's Mickey's there. And then you go, oh, it can't be him. He's now at the library with Derek or, you know, or, you know, uh, the part where uh, Derek does rock up to pick um, Sydney up after she's had the scare and Mickey was supposed to pick her up. What are you doing here? And like you said, like, it, it, they do it so well in trying to give you every character every almost like every five minutes like just give you a taste of all the characters so you can sort of in your head try and plot where everyone is at the time but also give everyone an alibi yet also a motivation or a reason to be not there and stuff like that so i think um like you said it, it, compared to a lot of other movies they try and juggle that but i think this one is really good at trying to put everyone someone there and someone not there and just giving you know just getting like even like you said like we see I never thought ever Portia de Rossi and Rebecca Gay Hart were the killers. But again, they give us enough to have that doubt that she, they just happen to pop up at a certain yeah. point. They kind of have a weird look and you go, well, are they the crazy two girls and there might be another male killer with them or whatever. It's just like, and I know they, you know, listen to the commentary a couple of months ago. I know that they, they were really big on, trying to sort of sell that as a little bit of a red herring. I never really believed it because it's these two girls and that's, that sounds very um, sexist, I know, but you've got to be believable as a killer. And I think, you know, the, sometimes the way the killer runs around in that costume and, and looks pretty decently sized, you kind of have to have the right... Well, you have to have the believability. Anyway, long story short... Well, I, think- I actually had the... When the first time I watched it, I had the the brief thought that it could be Sarah Michelle Gellar because she was she was a known entity. She pops up in the first film class. Yep. We've seen her kick ass as Buffy, and for that first bit where she's talking about stuff, and it's like, okay, she she's a contender. Like if we're starting to immediately think who is it that's doing this, she in that first scene, I think she's more of a contender than Mickey is because yep. Mickey just looks like the cool laid back dude. She looks like someone who would fuck you up if you crossed her. And it wasn't until you know they get to the frat house when she's home alone and she gets the phone call that I was like, oh, maybe it's not her. But even, right up until like she gets attacked, I was like, oh, maybe this is a, a red herring scene. Yeah. Like maybe she is, maybe somebody's calling her, pranking her, not realizing she's actually the killer. Or maybe she knows that there's someone else around in the house still, or maybe she knows someone's listening. Like I, I, I made a lot of excuses for myself, but I thought there was a chance. I thought that was a good red herring. And then no, she gets tossed off the fucking balcony. And it's, yeah. It's and you know what? I never probably considered her as a potential killer, but you're right. I think that would play against her type, her being the her- heroine in Buffy, but also dying in an, I know what you did last summer. How cool would it be to go, well, she's one of the killers. Yeah. She's got an ax to grind. She's, she wants to be, you know, the, she wants to be the badass. Yeah, she wants to be the number one girl. She's someone this Sydney Prescott who's got all this fame and money, or not money, but you know what I mean. Like she's having her fifteen minutes, very similar to something that might play out in Scream Four. But um, yeah, I've, yeah, I, I hadn't even really thought about Sarah Michelle Gellar, but I mean that's a good good get. I I could see that. I could see that that she could be that Especially would be ninety seven. Like I could see it in ninety seven. Now, yeah. if she was a killer in a movie, it'd be a bit obvious because, like, well, you're super famous. So if you're the killer, it's like, like if you watch Law and Order and in the opening credits and it's like, 
and Robin Williams. You're like, oh, well, he's the bad guy. He's not going to guest on an episode of SVU unless he's the frigging bad guy. Like, you know, if you see Sarah Michelle Gellar in a horror movie now, she's either the heroine or she's the killer. And because she was Buffy for so long, she probably wants to be the killer. Anyway, that's a so, track. I guess I, I look, we're going all over the place. Um, I guess showing our love uh, for this movie and our knowledge of the movie as well. Our fanaticism. But the one thing I did, like, I mean, there's still some in the first movie, there's still scenes that are in the day and sort of out in the open that look nice. But again, going to back to what I was sort of talking about, the casting and just everything feels like it's sexier and, and brighter and everything pops a bit more. I think just the location of having that college, which I believe was, um, I had looked that up recently. It's in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I think it's, it's not even a full college. It's might be just a women's college or something along well, those lines. Well, in some of the exterior shots, it doesn't look like a very big campus. Yeah. So, well, well like shot. College movies are fun. Yeah. If you see a movie set at a college, it tells you you're watching a fun movie straight away without but having I, to tell you this is a fun movie. But I think one of the, the conceits, let's let's not, you know, like labor the point, but I know I'm speaking in general terms here, but, you know, most slasher flicks, are, you know, set, you know, most of the majority of the kills and stuff are set in darkness, at night, um, eerie sort of circumstances, uh, you know, the, the power's gone out or whatever. Yeah, there are some kills in movies. That, you know, I'm thinking of like Friday the 13th. Yeah, some are sometimes set in the day, but it's kind of in the woods. It's a little bit dark or whatever it is. But generally speaking, we normally are bathed in darkness in these sort of movies. Yes, and it's difficult Where, to see what's going on. Whereas this one, very still very sort of similar to the first, but I still feel like this one, okay, you know what, let's push the envelope. Let's make a lot of this stuff still at the, during the day where as an audience, you're still not built to expect that. And I mean, the Randy kill is so big and so unexpected because they're in this open, beautiful space. It's bathed in sunlight. There's green grass, the trees, the buildings. And he's on the phone. There's people going around. There's a guy throwing a football, all that sort of stuff. And all bang, you just get this death scene in broad daylight. And I think that's very jarring as well. He's like, wow, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Oh, I refused to believe it was real for the rest of the movie the first time I saw it. I was like, there's no way that that's what happened. Randy's not dead. There's not a chance. And then the credits are only like, son of a bitch, Randy's dead. They killed Randy in a van in the middle of a crowded campus in the middle of the fucking afternoon. That's insane. And it was perfectly executed. I loved it. Yeah, and, uh, and it's weird because I think I think we're on the same page and a lot of really hardcore fans hated seeing randy die like they're like that's our guy and i'm still just... mad about it and i so i know I'm still I know, mad i know where's uh you know the late where's craven did say in the commentary too that was the one regret i think he had with the movies um was the debate on killing randy um and we might have a special guest that might elaborate on that point too um for the next episode but i think even though I still hate it, I wish Randy didn't die in that moment because I guess I was, at, you know, emotionally attached to that character. I think it was very important for this movie for the that to happen. Good without it, it has to happen. It absolutely has to. Happen. Well, it, well, even if it didn't, it wasn't Randy. You have to lose Dewey. You have to lose Gail or somebody. I think you can't keep. You want to have the final girl being Sydney and, and that sort of stuff, and you kind of anticipate. We well. well 
as an audience that think we know these movies, we kind of think we know what's going to happen to a point. I mean, having him die, you know, you just know all bets are off. But also, like, if you look at the structure of, of the characters, like, his, his purpose in the first movie is to educate the other people about the rules of a horror movie. And also, you know, he's the, he's the geek. He's the dweeb. And the dweeb gets to survive. That's a nice little, you know, reward for him knowing the rules of the game. But in the sequel, people know the rules of the horror movie. They lived it in real life. They no longer need the geek to be their, their guide, essentially. They don't need Gandalf anymore, you know? Like, they know the way. And Sydney is the final girl. She's got to stay. And Dewey is the knight in Shining Armor. He's got to stay. And Gale is like the, I don't know, the, the second in command, essentially. And also Gale and Dewey have the love story that we want, as an audience, we want to see play out. So if you look at the core four, the only one who lifts out is Randy. You take it and the others and it kind of falls apart. Because if you take Dewey out, Randy can't do what Dewey does. Randy's just going to get killed. Like well, if you don't have Dewey around, then Randy's going to get killed next. But if you take Randy out, the other three can stand on their own from a, from a character point, from a structure point. So it's perfect because you've established this core four, whereas an audience, you love all four of them. You want all four of them to survive. But if all four of them do survive, the stakes dramatically drop. And that was a big complaint people had with screen three is that you had your original three people back again and all three of them make it. And then Scream 4, you have your original three back again and all three of them make it. And people start to feel like the stakes aren't as high because it's kind of an expectation now that, well, at the end of the movie, Sydney, Gale, and Dewey live. That's just what happens in Scream movies, which personally I'm fine with. And if they kill one of them in Scream 5, I will be writing letters and I'll be furious. But <laughs> Do people still write letters? I'll be, I'll, 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 do it for this. I'll tell you what, I'll be finding those goddamn writers and I'll be writing them a letter and telling them to fix it. But yeah, for Scream 2, we, you know, we've only seen these characters in one movie. We don't have the same relationship, but also for this movie to feel like there's stakes, you have, you have to kill one of them. And the only one you can kill and still have as good of a movie as we get is Randy because he's the heart. Once you kill the heart, everyone, it's like the Avengers when they kill, what's his face? Greg, whatever he is, you know, and he's lying there dying. In the first Avengers movie, he's the guy, Agent Coulson. Agent oh, Coulson. Yeah, yes. Agent Coulson okay. shows up a little bit and then we have a rapport with him and we know him. He's the guide. He brings it all together. He's the one who's like got all the knowledge. And then in the first big fight, he dies and he tells us, you know, this wouldn't work if they didn't have something to. And then he doesn't finish a sentence because, you know, it's a movie, but this wouldn't work if they didn't have something to avenge. Scream 2 doesn't work if they don't have some personal stake in finding out who did this because let's be honest maureen and phil get killed they don't give a shit they're like god damn it again randy gets killed they're in it yeah they are in this and they want to solve this mystery now they're not just trying to escape they're trying you're right to i mean there's definitely fight. not those first couple of kills it definitely isn't an attachment to i mean like it's sad like i mean nev campbell's not happy that it's happening again and feels bad for these you know especially when cc dies it's like oh well, this poor girl but and then they don't know them. They've got no attachment to them. So yeah, I didn't go to high school and live through a massacre with you. I didn't give a shit. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It's, it's an interesting point you bring up because you talk about you can't sort of kill Dewey, but, you know, even by Wes Craven's own admissions, he they killed him off in the first one, but then they did a oh, shot. absolutely up, they did. And they go, oh, we'll do a shot of him maybe surviving and and then he's he survives into the second one and then they do the same thing again they they he was a kill, kill or, 
a death, yeah. and they and he looked well and truly dead. But they go, oh, oh well, he's messed up. Well, just in case, we'll we'll film an extra scene if we decide to keep him around. And, and you know, it was probably smart because I think they probably thought, well, we've killed Randy. That's going to piss people off already. Like if we kill Dewey as well, that's probably not the greatest thing. And let's keep him around. Then you think, but how much of it would the Scream universe be different if they had to kill Dewey off either either one of those times? Yeah, it's just. Well, it's an interesting point because a, a movie we both watched last night uh, that borrows very heavily from Scream is uh, Fear Street, uh, part one, 1994. Netflix original movie that just came out. And the first, we were talking about this before we recorded, the first 20 minutes of that movie is Scream down to the point where the first kill is a shot-for-shot reenactment of Casey Becker's kill from Scream yeah. 1. Obviously done very deliberately. It's not like a, you bastards, what are you doing? They the filmmaker cleverly is doing it to put you in a certain mood and then the movie goes its own way and i recommend it to people but something this movie does do is it sets up four core characters that you really love and spoilers if you have not watched it yet because it only just came out maybe fast forward 10 seconds but in in the final battle they kill two of the four core characters not one two and we know there's two more of these movies coming because they were announced as a trilogy and i was watching it and my first thought was, ah, oh, like I'm, I'm a little bit less excited for the second one now because I really love those characters and I can handle one of them copying it, but also those two characters die to save one character. So now you've sacrificed, of the core four cool people, you've sacrificed two to save one. And that math doesn't add up for me. And, mm. they, were, and they happened back to back. There's no like space yeah. between those kills. Yeah, and was I gonna... think had they done that in Scream 2, I think you, you get disappointment i think you get people going what randy and do are you kidding me like you killed them both so that means in screen three we get sydney and gail and a bunch of new people and that's cool like sydney and gail are great and i'm i watch a movie with those two characters fighting ghostface but there's gonna be a part of me that's like you didn't have to kill like maybe kill dewey in part three if you really have to kill him but do you ha- did you have to do it like you're kind of taking away half of the team in one go and that feels like a bit of a, a robbery as an audience member because you invest so heavily in them. The Randy death is like, oh my God, they killed Randy. But if you kill two of the four, it's kind of like, well, now you're just fucking with us. Now he's making us feel bad on purpose. And I think it, one of the things that did work is now like the running joke in the Scream universe is every movie, <laughs> Dewey almost gets killed and then does yeah. it. You know, he gets hit in the head with the knife because it hits him the wrong way in three. And then he gets hit with a bedpan in four. And like, it's, it's getting a bit ridiculous. I hope in five, there's a really ridiculous fake out kill instead of an actual kill but if they do kill him in five it will have a huge impact because they've waited three movies to do it now since the first time they killed him and it will be like oh my god they i i kind of feel like they need to kill him in the fifth one to be honest i i think like you said they go back to raising the stakes i think someone's got to die just just not in the opening credits just don't do a cotton weary don't kill him off pre-credits well, um, let actually, him, let him let him make it into the film. Don't well, have Dewey being killed. The reason that this all starts up again because that was uh, all cheap. Well, I'm glad you brought up Cotton Weary because that's the one thing, one of the big positives of this movie that I really loved as well. Wow, it's so good. And I, I think it again. Who knows? Maybe on some forum, other people are banging on about it. How great it was. But I think it's one of the more underrated parts of this movie. Is you have a person. And again, you know, not to keep going on to, about Wes Craven uh, in commentaries and stuff like that, but I've got, you know, books on Scream and, and Wes Craven interviews and stuff like that. I've 
you know, absorbed all that stuff over the years. But Cotton Weary was brought onto screen just to, at, at last minute, just to do some, you know, like you said, like that 15 second footage, not even 15 second footage yeah. of him being the killer. And I think he was on the set of another movie and they just brought him across. He might, he must have been doing another Moonrax film and they've got him and, and to do the movie and do this shot. And that couldn't have been better for him. Like he's done this quick little bit and then all of a sudden he's got this huge role in the second movie and they've got this whole new character that we know of. We know who he is without really knowing him too well. And then we get this fully fleshed out character seeking redemption in the sequel and but also has that kind of is he the killer could he be the killer is he a little bit psychotic was i mean he it's maybe one of the it's gonna be one of the biggest dumb luck casting wins in the history of cinema that the guy you cast to play the background nothing role he's not even in the actual movie he's just like in the tv in the yep. movie turns out to be one of the great actors of this generation yeah and 100 a is one of the great actors, but B is available and wanting to come on board and do the sequel, you know, less than a year later. Like he he hadn't done much before this. He'd done a couple of TV movies and he'd had bit parts in a few movies. Scream 2 is really his his first big role. But I I feel like when I watched Scream 2, he felt like he was already super famous. Like he'd done the day trippers as a lead, but that was a real indie movie. That was a, a Big, and it's it's developed a bit of a following but it's a it's like a, a greg matola comedy it's good i enjoy it it's not one of the most popular films ever and a lot of people are probably like i've never heard of it but then scream 2 he's kind of there but he felt famous when he did scream 2 like he felt like he was already somebody i mean it's because he's such a good actor he just dominated well, well that too but, but i, I think he's, he's i just man. i just wonder if it's because he was a known quantity to us because of the first Scream movie, he was already a character in that universe that it does feel like we kind of know him already. It's not like he was a brand new character they thought up for this movie. It's like, oh, this guy's got a backstory. We know he was wrongfully accused and Gail has a relationship with him. And like you said, like it, it did feel like he was more famous than he probably was. But I guess it's also the way he's portrayed in the movie. He's, he's on the talk shows. He's doing the media Media Street, you know, he's he's getting his name out there to clear it and, and tell everyone how much of a good person he is and he wants to get on with his life and all that sort of stuff. And it works. It's so good. It's so damn good. And if good. anyone has a motive, and if, if you could forgive anyone for having a motive, it's him. Like, he, yeah. he got falsely accused by Sydney. He got sent to jail. He is trying to clear his name. He's also, you know, trying to get his 15 minutes and get paid. And he's just asking Sydney to to fucking play a little ball here so that, you know, she can pay him back essentially for taking away, what is it, five years of his life it's meant to be or more, 10 years? No, I think it's only five years, isn't it? Because it's... I don't even think it's five. Because it's two Uh, years between Scream 1 and Scream 2. And I think he's... Oh, no, the the trial... No, it's it's an appeal. So I think he's been in jail for a little bit when Scream 1 starts. And then it's two years between that. So he must have gotten released at the end of Scream 1. So he's been out for two years. Like, look, the legal system's crazy, especially in America. He probably stuck yeah. in jail for another year while they went through the red tape. Look, let's just say he was in jail for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> and and when he gets out, he's right to be pissed. So I think yeah. that's a great setup. And again, like, I, I, I'm sure 
like there's a very simple explanation to it and you know the backdoor people probably would like yeah this leaf schreiber guy's going to be somebody uh we know it so you know we'll start putting in small stuff and then he's gonna be famous because we're going to make it happen but as an audience member i'll never not be wowed that like that tiny little background extra became the actor he is and like and you said became such a big character like you said it's such a small small role it's but like you said it's he's not actually even really on film he's in yes the tv on the film yes, you know exactly. like He's on the VHS. Woodsboro, yeah. He's in Woodsboro. He's on the TV in the background. And you see a splash of him. And you're like, oh, there's Lee Schreiber. Like, God damn, Yeah, that's crazy. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And, 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 he, and, and he dominates this movie. Every yeah. scene. He oh, does. he's like, so good in this movie. I love him in this movie. Which sort of leads us, I guess, to the killers a little bit and, and maybe the alternate ending because he was listed as a potential one of the first scripts I saw. And see, I don't even know why. I, I'm trying to even remember the timeline in my own head because I wouldn't have wanted to be spoiled, but I felt like no. I felt like I read that script and it was either just after the movie came out, so everything was revealed. So I, I went back and had a look at that first supposed leaked script. Um, or maybe I did see it beforehand. I don't, no, I couldn't have. I don't think I could have. I, I wouldn't have wanted to spoil it. But... Long story short, in that supposed leaked script, which we we can debate whether it was the real script or was a, you know, a, again another red herring to see who was leaking the scripts. They put out a fake script to leak because it was never fully completed. But Cotton Weary was there, like in the the final finished product, was there at that final scene. But he was having the moral dilemma, but he was still involved in. I, Yes. Does he kill Sydney? Um, I can't remember, but he was definitely kind of involved. Um, and so then, yeah, he had the motivation or at least not happy with Sydney for putting him away. And like you said, I think I... he definitely has the motivation and I could kind of see him sort of snapping going, you know what, but then you've made all this effort to clear your name and, and, and try to be a clean skin that I feel like that would just totally undo everything, all that work you've done by killing yeah, somebody. Yeah, and I also, I think that it, it, that would be lazy writing, like yeah. the the wronged person who's sent away for a crime they didn't commit seeking vengeance. It's a very played out concept that happens in, has been happening in movies since, you know, movies began. And it's not interesting because it is so obvious. It's like, yep, okay, cool. Like I said, like if anyone has a reason to be angry in this movie, it's him. You buy that. What makes it interesting is that end bit particularly when she's like cotton he's like yeah he's like can i have the gun he's like oh yeah sure like that when you realize oh no he's not a bad guy like he was just wrong place wrong time but he's not that is way more interesting and i think yes there's a universe where he is the killer or he helps the killers like he may not start out as a ghost face but he gets recruited by a ghost face and i think it's the same universe where randy lives in scream 2 and i think what you end up with is a scream movie that's fine but it's not great what makes it great is that the most likely suspect, we keep thinking it can't possibly be him, but we can't fully let go. It could be him because he keeps doing shit like when he gets her in the library and he like he's very clearly getting angry. Uh, it, it shows us that he's dealing with some stuff, but it's more interesting to see him not do that. It also, you know, one of the big themes that emerges in the Scream franchise is funnily enough, as Dom from the Fast series would say it's all about family like this is a series where <laughs> unlucky sydney prescott just happens to be associated with 
the most homicidal families around like it's her own boyfriend and again if you haven't seen the screen movies fast forward i'm going to tell you the killers but it's her own boyfriend then it's her boyfriend's mom then it's her brother then it's her freaking cousin like it's all family that and all the other killers are just dragged on by the main killer you know if if there's more than one spoiler and not every screen movie there's two killers but when there is two killers there's you know there's one person who's family and there's one person who's along for the ride and that's what happens and that's sydney prescott's kind of uh, suffering and so if it was cotton weary obviously he's not family yes he's involved in that because he was rooting her mom but you know it's not it doesn't have the same personal connection it makes sydney a less uh interesting character because that's the other thing we haven't talked about much but scream does something that no other slasher film does in that in the sequel it doesn't magic the original killers back to life or come up with an excuse how they survived. The killer is still ghost-faced. The slasher serial killer is still ghost-faced. It's just behind the mask. It's two totally different freaking people. Mm. And that is huge. That's a huge thing. Every other slasher. Somehow Michael Myers didn't die from getting shot six times. Somehow uh, Jason Voorhees didn't drown when he was a kid and now he's back and he's immortal. Somehow, you know, all of these characters every sequel they find a way to bring him back oh you thought they were dead but you know even halloween when they cut michael myers fucking head off they made h2k and they're like no he swapped the body with a paramedic it wasn't him like there's always a reason and in scream they're like no they're just dead now somebody else is going to put on the mask and the the victims become the main characters so yes ghostface is you know up there with freddie and jason and michael but no, up there even higher is Sydney and Gail and Dewey. Like they're on the same level as Ghostface because they are as integral to the story. And I think that's a big part of what makes Scream 2 so good is as an audience, you finally in a horror movie can become attached to characters that aren't the friggin' psychopath. You know, people love Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger, a, a psychopathic child molestering serial killer is one of the most beloved characters in horror. Because we don't have anyone else. Because the, the the victims will die, you know. But in Scream, they come back and they come back and come back, and and we get to associate with them. So I guess the other one that we haven't really talked about, Laurie Metcalf as Debbie Salt slash Billy Loomis, Billy's mother. Oh, it's um, such a good delivery of the line because it's so ridiculous. But when Timmy the Elephant does it like that, you immediately stop caring that it's ridiculous. Yeah, um. I am embarrassed to say I that was one that I didn't see coming. I don't know oh, why. I didn't see it coming. Um, how could you see it coming? Because you don't know she's Billy's mother. She's just no, no, no. Salt, the well, we we obviously don't know that, but I think having Laurie Metcalf, who I was very well known, well to me was very well known from Roseanne. Roseanne, yeah. Um, oh, I, I knew her. Um, she was in it, and she was playing this again, sort of small character, and. Yeah, in, in hindsight, when you go, she's a killer, it makes sense. Uh, but you that's know, the brilliance of it, because Laurie Metcalf is yeah. in it, and she's a known actor in a small part. Sarah Michelle Gellar's in it as a known actor in a small part. Joshie Jackson's yeah. in it in a small part. Timothy Oliphant's in it in a small part. Like, all yeah. of these actors, that's what you go through the cast, you know everyone. Mm. So when one of those actors, or two of those actors, who you kind of know, who haven't been in the movie that much, turn out to be the killers... Like it could have just as easily been Sarah Michelle Gellar or Rebecca Gayhart or Louis Arquette, you know? Yeah. It could be any of these frigging character actors that pop up in this movie, but it just happens to be them. And but I think, the re reason is pretty cool. But it, it made sense because that was the one thing I thought if they're going to 
give us um, a decent motivation for the killer, I'm like, it has to be some sort of revenge. Someone's coming for, like, yes. someone is related to Stu or um, or Billy, and that was that was the one thing I definitely thought there was going to be some sort of revenge. Someone that they didn't know was there or, or had some sort of attachment, and it obviously was Debbie Soul. I was just annoyed that I didn't see it coming because I was looking for it, and that was right in my face, and I just didn't pick up on it. But I guess because it's because it's... you just assume because Gail doesn't pick up on it. She tells us her name, but yeah, hiding in I mean, plain sight. Hiding in plain sight. But then you notice, like Nev Campbell, sorry, Sydney never was in the same scene, so she would never have seen her to identify her. Mm-hmm. Um, crazy. I, but I will say I'm very proud of. I kind of picked Mickey. I don't know what it was about Mickey, but I, I sort of felt like, like you said, like he's pretty ripped. There's something about him. He kind of had that look, but also he was very good at manipulating others to plant the seed of doubt in other characters. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. There was something at Mickey I felt like, yeah, I was confident he'd be a killer, potentially. Um, but Debbie, I didn't see coming. But then after I saw the movie, I, I felt like some people, oh, yeah, it was so obvious. It was it was the mum and, oh, oh, yes. Oh, that was so obvious. Like, it was so, oh, you know. I'm like, wow, what movie did I watch? It's like, maybe I'm just, <laughs> my intellect's not quite as good as I thought. But supposedly everyone thought they knew Debbie Salt right from the get-go was a killer but I'm like they must have been sport because I, I really don't think it was that obvious I, I never picked it I, I love Laurie Metcalf in Roseanne and I knew her very well when I saw her I'm like oh okay she's popped up in screen but again people have to put it in context context is everything like screen yeah. 2 was one of the most hype movies of the decade yeah. like screen was huge screen 2 was bigger everyone wanted to be a part of it hmm. which is why you have so many actors who people knew playing small parts they just wanted to get in there just for a bit and so for laurie metcalf to be in there i was like yeah i I guess that makes sense like like david arquette's dad plays the sheriff yeah like nobody was like oh what louis arquette like everyone wanted to be in this goddamn movie so it made perfect sense to me i don't remember if i picked mickey i think i was a bit of a sucker and i think i was leaning on Derek. i think I, I remember watching it and I think I was feeling like, oh yeah, it'd be so obvious that it's Derek. It's actually kind of genius to make it Derek because everyone would be like, well, it's not going to be the boyfriend again. Yeah. Thank God it's not because in retrospect, like having the boyfriend be the killer twice, man, that would be dumb. But it was so well done and so well put. I was like, oh, that'd be pretty cool. I think I felt a little bit like it might have been uh, Hallie because... Like I said before, like we get hardly any information about anyone, but we get the least amount of her. The only thing we know about Hallie is she's Nev's roommate. And Candyman's daughter. And Candyman's daughter. <laughs> but we get we get no other like information about her. Everyone yeah. else has a reason to be. Mickey's studying film. Derek's studying medicine. Cotton Weary's trying to get his life back on track. Gail and Dewey are here to help solve the murders. Randy obviously went to the same university as Sydney because he's still in love with Sydney. Like everyone's got a reason and she's just Sydney's roommate. And the fact that they made so much talk about how, you know, the first movie was so white and then they have these characters at the start who are African-American talking about how these movies are so white and then those characters get killed. I, I remember thinking like, oh, it would be like a, a, an interesting riff on that if one of the killers is an African-American woman. It's like it couldn't be much more opposite of the first two killers of two of the whitest white guys you can imagine. And then... It's uh, it's just two of the whitest white people you can imagine. But I, I thought at the time, I think I remember being like, what's she up to? Like, she's just kind of around, but 
well, why you were around. And it kind of, again, coming back to that leaked script and, and how much you put or how much stock you put in that being a legitimate thing, and, and I guess until uh, Kevin Williamson comes out and definitively says, oh, yeah, this is what I had planned or this is, was the rough draft of this, but Hallie was one of those killers with Derek. So um, it was Derek and Hallie were secretly together and lovers, and that was the whole revenge thing that she would be the, I guess, the, the roommate and he would be the boyfriend. And- Which, what a weird revenge plot. Like, all right, we're going to get revenge on her by living with her and letting her have sex with my boyfriend. That's going to be, oh man, she's going to feel yeah. so like, See, what I, I the think, hell? I think it's definitely, that's that's where you go, oh, that's a little bit of a stretch. I, I don't well, know. Allegedly, and I don't, again, like there's a lot of rumors about this movie and I think that's because there was so much secrecy, but allegedly none of the cast knew who the killer was until they filmed the scene where they revealed the killer. So none, none of the cast were involved. It's the legend is it was the last day of principal photography. So the very last thing they did was reveal it was Mickey and, and Debbie salt. I mean, I, I've worked on some film sets and I got to say it, that's a pretty tricky thing to execute because trying to get those shots done last and then everything like you didn't have to do any post-production. You didn't have to do any pickups. You tell me you got all those shots on the last day, but maybe they did. I mean, uh, also, none of the cast had the last 10 pages of the script, so nobody yep. knew what was coming. That's that's the rumor. Uh, all of the the last 10 pages were like printed in almost impossible to read gray paper, so no one could photocopy it. Uh, oh, all of the actors had to sign confidential agreements, and multiple actors were told that they were the killer at, at casting. And then this is where it's confused because this is a rumor that comes out at Scream 3 as well. As multiple people were told they were the killer at the casting because the producers and the director knew that some people would leak. Yeah. But not everyone was going to keep them. Someone was going to tell their, their roommate or their brother and they get it out. And then it wasn't until they were into production, like, you're not the killer anymore. Or some people alleged they were definitely the killer and then it got changed and they were bummed out. They didn't get to be the killer because they thought they were going to be the killer. I can't remember if it's Scream 2 or Scream 3, but that's the, the thing. Of, but you have to take all that with a grain of salt because one of the other big long-held rumors about this movie and it takes it back, like like Jamie Kennedy says from Beyond the Grave in number three, it go, it all goes back to the beginning. The beginning of Scream 2 is Stab. We see Stab. And Stab credits are directed by Robert Rodriguez. And the legend for so long was that Robert Rodriguez came in and he filmed the, the movie Stab, or he filmed the scenes of Stab. And that was like his little you know gift to the production. We know, Cable. We know now for a fact that that never happened. That Wes, that Wes Craven directed every frame of this movie, including the stab things. And the rumor, and it's still on IMDb for some reason, the rumor that Robert Rodriguez directed the stab scenes is a lie. And we know that for a fact because we spoke to someone who knows. Yes, we did. We did. That's coming soon. Coming soon. That's a little teaser. That's a little teaser for this. That is a very good teaser. I like that. I like that a lot. So I guess I'm going to sort of go all the way back to the start uh, Angus and uh, one of the things that really inspired me for a long time and it was something that's always been in the, you know like a bug in my brain and you know thinking about sequels and it was the conversation about sequels in this movie it was very meta and the thing about this that works on so many levels for me personally is because this actually played out in my English class as well um so I just love this scene. I love the fact that they're talking about, oh, someone wants to make a real-life sequel. What, sequels suck? 
and we have this banter about oh what sequels were better than the original um and, and it's so much fun and i mean it was great um they were able to get sarah michelle Gellar to come in for the day josh jackson just gave it a little bit more seriousness um if you go um to the dvd or the blu-ray or whatever where you have deleted scenes for this movie if you actually watch this scene the original cut of it not to um slander the people involved on the, in that part but it's a very mediocre average kind of scene thank god they decided to reshoot it and play down the mickey stuff and also bring in a reason to have sarah michelle Gellar so she's not just a kill have her in the class have her interact same with josh jackson but even the setting the setting's different the arrangement of the chairs is better that whole scene works a million times better than what was originally shot but yeah, it inspired me. But also one of those life imitating art sort of scenarios that they do talk about in these movies very well. So Scream for us, and we've said 97 it was released. 97 in the States. So December 1997, we didn't get it till January. So 1998, I saw the movie up in Queensland, come back to start year 12. English class, somehow it came up. Uh, you know, books, movies, something. And somehow it, it came up and, and the teacher mentioned something about sequels and, and maybe it was at the at the time referencing more so the books or the and, and books, movies, I can't remember. But then I remember saying, this is exactly like the conversation they had in Scream <laughs> 2. Scream 2. And even someone, I remember someone specifically saying, Scream 2, that was poo. And it's like, Ooh. then there was this, what? And there was this huge debate. And I was like, oh, that was good. And then, and then it was like, yeah, remember Terminator 2? And then it was this back and forth. People were just reeling off all these awesome sequels. And I'm like, then I was just almost like sitting back like this, like just rising <laughs> up. Oh my God, how cool is this? Like, it was like, <laughs> I did it. yeah, it was just, it, it, so it, for that, for me, that scene's always going to be so, again, going back to what I said at the start of the podcast, some people are on screen too. That's one of your favorite movies. That's, that's random. Um, but that scene, I mean, you know, you think of some of the greatest scenes in cinema, like your favourite movie, Jaws, that scene where they're discussing their war injuries um, yes. around the table. And there's all these great scenes in movies. But for me, that's, I'm not saying it's the greatest scene, but it's still one of my favourite enjoyable small scenes to watch because they're discussing something we're very passionate about is movies and sequels. So, well, it, um, yeah, it was a big it was a big seed that germinated for me too is like taking series sequels seriously and i for that movie did corrupt me for because for a lot of years afterwards i walked around just like blanketly believing that godfather 2 was the best sequel of all time because that scream 2 isn't the only movie that references godfather 2 as being the ultimate sequel it's kind of a, a thing that a lot of people throw out especially in arguing about whether or not there should be sequels to movies but i was just like oh yeah like in scream 2 they nail it they talk about how godfather 2 is the best sequel and everyone is like oh yeah it is and i just kind of accepted it <laughs> and, and moved on but it did when they're talking and arguing so vehemently about it about how you know the merits of terminator versus terminator 2 about even like house 2 the second story and, <laughs> and all those like fun little things like it it does plant that idea that like yeah like the expanding of a of a really great story and a really great world if it's done well if it's done with with something to say, friggin' amazing. Like sequels can be some of the most enjoyable films you see. One hundred percent. And 
on that, that, I guess the other thing I wanted to bring up, and then I hadn't, I can't believe I hadn't brought up, and I, you know, I talked about how well shot this movie was. Oh. How again, so like how much, you know, when they talk about some of those movies, like the big blockbusters with special effects, whether you know, like it's you know, Star Wars or I don't know, Die Hard or, or one of those movies that's got so much feast of the eyes and, and the aesthetics, like you don't necessarily ever think about a slasher film being in that context but i think so much of what is shot and edited and shown is so aesthetically great on the eye and like i was saying like the locations and open spaces and the sunlight and but just all the the decisions they made with set design like i said like they had this set where they had the amphitheater style seating with randy and mickey and they deleted that scene and reshot it for a small intimate classroom which they nailed so they, they go, okay, we've got a really cool scene here. Doesn't work 100%. Let's redo it. Um, but there's so many great scenes. Like the theatre scene, for me, I'll be honest, when I first saw it in the first couple of times I watched um, uh, Scream 2, that I felt like I don't, I didn't know if I loved the theatre scene and that, that whole, you know, the, the fire, the cellophane and the fire and all that sort of stuff. I'm like, oh, I don't like it, but I've actually really come to love it. And it's a great choice for the movie i think it's amazing it works um and then the other thing that i just love so much and it might also come down to having that experience at at university a couple of years later and being you know helping on a tv show that bros uh was making back in the early 2000s was like that the 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 walling and the, the sound booths and and all that and just you know the killer stalking gail and she's moving across the walls how that is all shot is so good and then the reveal of her having her back to dewey as he's getting stabbed and she can't sort of you know hear it until you know it's sort of too late i mean just all that works so much that um yeah i don't know again it doesn't seem like it's much but it's what makes you love a movie and just how well they did it like they could have just made that just pretty basic but it oh, feels yeah. like they've gone to the trouble of going, we want to, this is what A, B and C has to happen in this scene, but let's, how can we make it more exciting, more tension? Oh yeah, we'll just drop the sound. We'll have no sound in this scene and we'll have the reveal be Dewey on the other side of the glass or whatever it is. It's just everything they nailed 100% to just take it up a level beyond just a, a slash a sequel. They, they raise the bar. Yeah, absolutely. They could have made it quickly. They could have made it cheaply. They decided to make it good. And that's what we get. We get a, a good movie that is a great sequel. Yeah. And there's no there's no complaining about this movie, I don't think. And I don't think no, there's a lot th- of films in general, I, let alone sequels, you can say that about. Yeah. It's um yeah, I think they re- and and I guess that's the other thing. I mean almost in closing before we give our ratings, which is probably pretty obvious to the listener already. I, I think don't, don't bury the lead. It could suck. Yeah. I think, I think the thing about this movie is there was so, like you said, the, the time frame of them putting the movie together and making something of substance that could be uh, decently put alongside the original for what they did. Me personally, what they did was, make a great movie, if not raise the bar that little bit more. Um, 
with like you're saying, with scripts, trying to be secret, making sure things didn't leak out, you know, all this stuff that came together in a short time span, it's not like they had five years to make it and nail it. Like you said, they had six months to sort of, you know, and then also, like I said, like trying to, you know, film things in certain sequences so things didn't get spoiled, filming multiple endings, all that sort of stuff. I just think there was so much pressure on them to get it even half decent for what they did that we got to see. They knocked it out of the park and it, it should be commended. I, I think, again, that's maybe, again, why I put it on such a high pedestal that it, it really, in a lot of ways, had no right to be any good. No, what- no it, sh- it should not have been good. A rushed sequel to a surprise hit with a, a, a largely sort of completed story um, to find a way to, to resurrect those characters and that story and that idea and not just do it again and get paid, but to do it bigger and do it potentially better and do it in differently uh, and then have it be a well-made film. Like, like go watch any slashes, you know, from the heyday of slashes. And if they're lucky enough to get a sequel, check out the sequels. They usually like, they're not in it to make a great film. You know, it, it's hurried. They won't spend money on it. They won't spend money on cast, on costume, on budget, on nothing. Like you get dark, shaky cam scenes, quick, boring kills. Occasionally you might get something where, you know, a Tom Savini or Rick Baker has gotten hired and you get some pretty cool effects just by virtue of the fact you managed to hire some of the greatest effects makers of all time. But at the end of the day, even if you have a good director attached, they don't have the time or the budget to make a great film. Stars align and people gave Wes Craven the money he needed and the time he needed uh, to, to, turn out a great film you know things like what you just talked about uh, people who don't care about or spend any time on the other side of film don't realize how rare and difficult it is to reshoot a scene that's done like that costs money and producers and line producers and accountants they all go we've got that scene we don't have to shoot that scene means adding extra days to production extra days mean extra dollars extra dollars are not in the budget that means going over budget that's like the thing you don't do in movies, especially horror movies. The whole point of horror movies is they're cheap, they're quick, and they always make their money back. And somehow Wes Craven being respected and Scream being the hit and everyone being like, let's see what happens. They gave him the, the rope they needed to make the movie. We got a great freaking movie that that continued on a franchise. Like Scream gave us Scream 2, but Scream 2 gave us the Scream franchise. You know, we're not getting three, four, and now five and a TV series and countless spin-offs without Scream 2 there holding it all up. Oh, absolutely. Have you got a... Oh, actually, no, before we go to our favourite pastry scoring system, um, the other thing, can you believe... So I thought I would say I would have watched this movie 100 times, no doubt. I'd say pretty easily, yeah, for me. And I know people say, oh, I've seen that movie 100 times. I can actually say I've seen that movie. I've definitely seen it 100 times. Um, but something I only realized recently after, especially after our interview with a special guest that we will reveal soon. And it was, you know, going back and I, I can't believe I didn't bring this up earlier and it obviously escaped my mind, but when we were talking about Randy dying and Dewey being a potential death as well, but they filmed, you know, him surviving just in case they decided to go down that path. And the same thing happened with the first movie. Something that I never, ever picked up on until recently was Gail is walking around. Yeah, she's being bandaged up, but she got fucking shot. 
Did she <laughs> yeah. not? Yeah. And it's like, shot. and it bounced I've watched off enough, a rib. I th- I feel like I've watched enough movies now. Like I know there's sometimes some leaps in in uh, comments. Or, you know, things are a bit far fetched and some injuries you know get downplayed or underplayed or, or overplayed in movies but i think i've watched enough movies now and seen enough medical dramas i'm like she's getting shot there she ain't just walking around she's off she's in the in the ambulance with him on the way to hospital she's in one of those stretches too she ain't walking around and getting just a little bit no, no, of a, no, it, it just bounced com- off one of her ribs oh it's like she's oh they go oh here's a compression a compression bandage don't worry about the bullet we'll worry about that later like yeah more, more like, worried about the little stab in Dewey which he's had before he'll be fine it's in his back it's not like it's yeah. gonna puncture his heart so he I, that was the one thing I was like oh my god I've never thought of that before and it's like that's just I know they it's kind of a good scene to establish that he's still alive but I'm like she should be on that she should be on a stretcher too. And it would have made maybe better sense to have her on a stretcher and they wheel him next to her as the surprise he's still alive. But anyway, you know hard. why you've never noticed that it's so absurd and you know why you buy it? Because Gail Weathers is played by Courtney Cox and Courtney yes. Cox is a fucking badass. Yeah. And if anyone has probably... shot the ribs and just have a bullet bounce off their ribs, it's going to yep. be Courtney Cox. Yep. 100%. 100%. <laughs> All right. So... This is going to be so anticlimactic, I think, for the, for anyone that does listen. But uh, what rating are you going to give this, Angus? You know, honestly, this has been one of the hardest ones to come up with for my bullshit, stupid pastry rating because mm. I can't separate them. I can't figure out which one is... Like, every time I think I'd land on it and I think Scream. And here's what I figured out. if If I just want to watch a Scream movie... The one that I'm going to reach for 99.9% of the time is Scream 2. It's the yep. most rewatchable mm. of the four. It's one of the most rewatchable films of all time. Part of that is it's like a college setting. Part of it is it's straight in the action. It's it's all the things we've spoken about. But in terms of like sitting it as a sequel to Scream and as a sequel to a movie, like how does it fit with that, this this pastry thing that I've, I've fallen onto? If the original is a, a, a surprise, you know, which it was. You know, maybe it's, I would equate it to you're having dinner at your your auntie's house who's a little bit like buttoned down, a little bit like a bit boring and you love her, but she's not the most interesting and you eat your veggies and then out of nowhere, she's like, by the way, I made a cake and she just pulls out a cake for dessert. She's like, and let's have some ice cream on the cake. You're like, holy shit, this is the best day ever. I'm getting cake and ice cream. I never expected it. It doesn't even have to be that great. It turns out it is, but cake and ice cream, this is freaking great. The next time you go to a house, you're expecting cake and ice cream, right? That's screen two. You are expecting cake and ice cream because the first time it came out, so good. And when the cake and ice cream comes out, it could go either way and you eat it. And even though you know you're getting it, you can't believe it's this good again. So you can't figure out in your brain if the cake and ice cream are as, as good as the last time you got it or better. Was the surprise and the delight of getting it weighing in on your judgment? Is this time the fact that it's happening again and you thought it was going to, but you can't believe it's happening? Is that weighing in on it? And at the end of the day, you're getting something delicious and you're getting something amazing and you're just getting it handed to you. And maybe this time you expect it, but it doesn't change the fact that it's freaking great. So there is no way for me to ever honestly figure out what this is. Is this, is this the better apple pie? Is this the same apple pie again? And I just don't notice because I'm so surprised I'm getting it again. Is it worse than the original? But 
there's more of it. So I'm happy because last time I got a slice, this time I get the whole friggin' pie. I, I don't know. I'm stumped. I'm stumped when it comes to rating this movie. It's, it's just, it's beyond pastry based ratings. It trans. Yeah. It's, um, and then the more I think about it, I feel like the pastry ratings, I don't know where that came from, really. I mean, obviously, you started talking that way. And I think I in Jaws 2, I started talking yeah, about it. But I, I, feel like, I feel like, I feel like, I did like it. I enjoy it. It's different. <laughs> it's not the usual thing you would hear on a movie-related podcast. But it does make me feel like we need to do American Pie 2 very soon. <laughs> oh, my God. There's, there's another sequel that I've watched at least 100 times. Um, yeah, I... I I don't even know how to sum it up to an audience. Like I said, even trying to use the metaphor of the pastry, whether it's a donut or it's a, a nice cherry ripe slice or something like that. I, I can't, I, I can't put it into words because I, I'm like you, I've watched this definitely more than the first movie and I'm not saying it's better than the first movie, but maybe just my emotional attachment and experience with this movie is um, more because that that was the, you know, I mean, obviously I saw the first one, but it was on video. It wasn't the same experience. I had such a good experience um, living this one in real time. Um, but there's something about it. I think it's, you know, obviously they put more money in it, but more people want to be in it. It just felt like, again, I don't want to say it, say the word sexy again but I, I feel like it's definitely a sexier more colorful more aesthetically just so much more eye candy to it um whereas the, the first movie does feel wouldn't say cheap but that does feel a little bit more indie um like even the color even the font of the word screen when it comes up in the first movie whereas this one's this really cool screen and the two ripping across i don't know it just feels like they go oh now we've got money and everyone wants this movie. We're going to go all out. And it just it just looks just so much. I guess it's if you look at the pastries, it's like they both taste the same, but one just looks better than the other. Like one's got a glaze on it or something like that. Maybe that's it. And maybe, maybe, this, maybe looks. The first one was an apple pie with a regular lid and this one's got a lattice lid or they've carved a dove in it. Yeah, or something like that. It's just. <laughs> Or it's got like a little bit like it's an apple cake, almost like not an apple pie, but it's like the apple cake that has the white sort of icing oh, on it or something. But it's there's so much about this movie that again, the rewatchability, I've definitely watched it for more than the first the first one, which I've probably already said. But I think you hit on a, a point earlier in the in the in the podcast that I think it shouldn't be downgrading scream at all, but I think there is exposition that when you watch it and you watch it quite a few times, I think there are some lulls in Scream now. Like if you watch it, there are some moments you go, oh, they can maybe, if they did a recut of it, they could probably speed it up a little bit. And there's a couple of things that I think in Scream 2 that I, sorry, not Scream 2, but Scream, that I, I feel like there's some maybe extra stuff in there they probably, again, in hindsight, don't need. Whereas, like you said, I think Scream 2 really, it doesn't necessarily move in a cracking pace, but it still really keeps moving. That I feel there's like no there's, fat. There's, there's no, no fat. No, I, I don't. I don't think there is. And that's the other thing. And I, I think it's just also the the, with all of them coming back. You know, Kevin Williamson is the writer. Where's Craven? Uh, Marco Beltrami coming back for the soundtrack. You have the same editor, Patrick uh, Luzier. Uh, you've got. 
all these other people. You know, well, you got Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, Jamie Kennedy, David Arquette. You've just got all these people coming back, and it's like, oh, well, we know what we did with the first one, and it, it hit out of the park. Well, we know we can do the same thing but better, and we've got a little bit more money, and we can. I don't know. It just feels like the team came back and they learned everything on the first one. And the second one was like, well, now we know what we're doing. We can, you know, just take this one to the next level. So, um, yeah, I, I, again, I, I don't know. I can't put it into words, but it's my favourite scream. And I'm not embarrassed to say it, to be honest. I do I do feel bad when people are like, what the, what the fuck are you talking about? But, Those yeah. People don't know shit. Scream few rules. Well, I, th- I, th- I think some Scream fans, like, I feel like even when you go online or in Facebook groups, I think it has become a thing that um, Scream 2 definitely has probably been elevated over the years. Or maybe people deep down have always loved the second one and, and more than the, the first one. And I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. A lot, maybe we should do a poll one day. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, I think that's it. I think, I think we've said it all. I, I think we've covered probably I, I think we've covered everything in the movie. I think the only way that we could possibly go any more in depth into Scream Two is if we managed to speak to someone who worked on Scream Two. I think that's the only way we could we could get more into this. Could we do that? Though? That's enough. could we do that? That's the question. Be, I mean, could we be lucky enough to to get an interview with someone? who is a, a crucial part of not just Scream 2, but the Scream franchise. Um, yeah. I don't know, but I think if, if we were ever going to talk more about Scream 2, if we're ever going to go more into depth into this film, I think the only way we could do it is we'd have to bring in a special guest who had something to do with the movie. And maybe uh, maybe, maybe the Scream 2 gods will smile on us. Could that be the mystery guest waiting in the wings? Oh, is that our special guest? You'll have to tune in next week to find out. Spice twist, huh? Didn't see it coming, did you? By definition alone, there are fewer fish.